humans have known that horses can consume protein different times. I mean, when the book was released, there were originally 18 different types of meat, including human, that we knew horses had eaten. And this had occurred in 30 countries over a space of 4,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, we This English horse got loose and then systematically went through the streets of Lucknow killing people and tearing them apart. And if you sit down with them, you say, okay, look, I'll just put it on the table and you decide. And I think that's what I'm talking about. You know, you're such a great example of this, Tim. I mean, you look at the book, you go, well, I don't know. You know, I see a lot of kooky stuff in my life and I don't know. And at the end of the book, you go, you know what? I think the guy's kind of right. If I put the miles in, will you invite me into the Long Riders? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Chicago is a long time coming, and you change getting there, I'll tell you. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallOfAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to our good buddy Pete Diggins for providing the theme music to this installment of the program. Check out his website, www.orophonic.com, and you spell that A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. Check it out. As noted at the end of last week's episode, tonight's program kicks off the final four of Season 6. Truly the home stretch for the season, and I can't think of a better guest for the home stretch than equestrian researcher and accomplished long rider, Colin O'Reilly, for a discussion on his groundbreaking book, Deadly Equines, The Shocking True Story of Meat-Eating and Murderous Horses. I'll pause there and let you digest that, no pun intended, The Shocking True Story of Meat-Eating and murderous horses. Over the course of this two-hour adventure, we're going to discuss Cacullin's powerful case for meat-eating horses, including historical accounts from ancient and contemporary times, the collective equestrian amnesia that has befallen our culture, and the reaction to his research from the equestrian community, the scientific community, and people who work with horses every day. But really, that's just the meat-eating horses part of the conversation because we're also going to discuss murderous horses, a completely separate but equally bizarre anomaly that Cacullin has uncovered. He's going to have a ton of stories about murderous horses and speculation on what makes them so savage. And as if all that is not enough, we're also going to talk about Cacullin's accomplished career as a long rider and his organization, the Long Riders Guild. Chances are, if you're like me before I met Cacullin, you don't have any idea what a long rider is. After you're done listening to this episode, you're going to have an extensive knowledge of the world of long riding. And trust me, my friends, it is amazing. We're going to learn all about the practice, the world of long riding. I don't even know if you'd call it a sport. I'm not quite sure what you'd call it. It's almost like a vision quest. And Cacullin O'Reilly really 
is a major player in the world of long riding. So you're going to learn all about that stuff. Really a surprising sort of twist for me as I got into the conversation with Cullen because I found the long riding stuff equally interesting to the meat-eating and murderous horses. So it's almost like a threefer episode here. Lots of stuff going on, lots of discussion on a whole bunch of different equestrian-related stuff. It is, pun intended, a barn burner of a program. This one is definitely going to end up in the rotation for BOA Audio Classic episodes. You are about to enjoy a true gem. Fascinating, enlightening, and awe-inspiring. This conversation is a proverbial long ride of esoteric insights on not only equines, but also humans with the truly remarkable Cacullen O'Reilly. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Cacullen O'Reilly, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Cacullen O'Reilly has spent more than 30 years studying equestrian travel techniques on every continent. After having made lengthy trips by horseback across Pakistan, he was made a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and the Explorers Club. Upon completing his book, Kyber Knights, he founded the Long Riders Guild, the world's first international association of equestrian explorers. The organization has members in 40 countries, all of whom have made a qualifying equestrian journey of at least 1,000 miles. The Guild has supported more than 100 equestrian expeditions on every continent except Antarctica. Cacullen is married to the Swiss long rider Basha cornwall Lay, who rode her Cossack stallion Count Pompey from Volgograd to London, becoming the only person in the 20th century to ride out of Russia. The O'Reillys are the webmasters of the Long Riders Guild website. At 2,000 plus pages and still growing, and having now been visited by more than a million people worldwide, this website is the repository of the largest collection of equestrian travel information in human history. Additional material from the O'Reillys can be found at the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation. And let me give you the URLs for both those websites. The Long Riders Guild can be found at thelongridersguild.com. Pretty simple, all one word, the Long Riders Guild the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation. This one's a little easier. It's just lrgaf.org. lrgaf.org. Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 12, 2011. Colin O'Reilly talking about deadly equines. The shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And I am just super excited about this edition of the program. I had the fantastic opportunity to read this man's book yesterday and was completely blown away. If I wasn't reading it on the computer, I'd say that I couldn't put it down, but uh, I couldn't pull myself away from the computer while I was reading this book. It was just that mind-blowing and amazing and fantastically put together, too. So just a complete all-around home run effort by this guy, and uh, I'm dying to get him on the program here to talk about his fantastic research. The book I'm talking about is Deadly Equines, The Shocking True Story of Meat-Eating and Murderous Horses. And with a title like that, I'm sure people are like, whoa, this is going to be crazy. But like I said, when I went into the book, you know, 
the, the, he makes the case so well for meat-eating and murderous horses that by the end of the book, you're like, you know, your worldview has changed, at least as far as equines go. So just a fantastic piece of work. And I'm just dying to dig into his brain here and find out more about this bizarre, as he calls it, O'Reilly anomaly. And kudos to him. He, he tagged his name there on the on the anomaly. I'm talking about Cacullin O'Reilly coming to us actually direct from France, which is very exciting to have an international guest on the program once again. Cacullin, I'm thrilled to have you here on the show and can't wait to discuss Deadly Equines. Thanks for talking to me about it, Tim. I should also mention you're part of the, actually, I think you're the founder of the Long Riders Guild, and let's give the website for that is uh, thelongridersguild.com, pretty easy. And I have no real prior knowledge of horses, but and this is actually a cool part about the book, too. I learned so much beyond just the deadly equines part. I just learned a tremendous amount about horses. And I'm going to assume or presume that a long rider is someone who actually you know, and I'm going to sound like a fool here, but someone who takes a long ride on a horse, like we're talking thousands of miles, right? Is that what a long rider is? Yeah, the Long Riders Guild is the world's first international association of equestrian explorers. And we have members in 44 countries. Every member has to have ridden a minimum of 1,000 miles to be invited. Wow. Uh, it's a non-competitive, academic, international association. Um, we have members um, in like I said, around the world, and they have done some really remarkable equestrian journeys. Um, the Russian long rider Vladimir Fasinko rode 19,000 miles from Patagonia to the top of Alaska. Holy shit. Um, Gordon Naismith, the Scottish long rider, rode from the tip of South Africa uh, to the, um, uh, the the Olympics in Munich, and, and it just goes on and on. Wow. That's see, I. You know, I'm sure there's places where you can hear about this stuff, but I've I've never really heard, I didn't know this was still going on nowadays. You know, people you think that it was obviously going on back in the day. People didn't have planes and cars, so they traveled quite a distance by by horse. But the people are still doing that. That's amazing. Well, it's interesting because um, the Long Riders Guild started uh, in in 2000. Uh, it had uh, equestrian travel had reached such a perilous point where it was almost about to go extinct. And I had just finished a giant book about my own travels in Afghanistan and Pakistan called Kyber Nights. And uh, I realized that, you know, we were, we were about to lose it. And so I called uh, the first international meeting, and there were originally five of us from three countries. And now, 11 years later, it's spread to 44 countries. It's the only equestrian association of its kind uh, in the world. And um, it's open to any human who wants to get on a horse and take a life-changing equestrian journey. And we've now mentored more than a hundred equestrian expeditions on every continent except Antarctica. Wow. I don't know if I could do long riding. Well, the thing about this is, and, and I think this is important for people to understand because long riders aren't your traditional horse people. You know, um, if you, and I, I know I'm, I'm speaking primarily to an American audience, so let me put this in American context. Um, at the beginning of the First World War, there were approximately 22 million horses in America. And by 1930, the vast majority of those horses were all dead. Um, the, the cavalry was dying or had just about gone extinct. Um, mechanization had taken over agriculture. People had stopped traveling because of the, Ford, the cheap Ford automobiles. And by the end of the Second World War, horses were pretty much 
they were just pushed right to the sideline. And in the resulting vacuum that started, say, from 1955 until the year 2000, we've had a shift in how we view horses and what horses are used for. And you have a lot of prestige transport. You have a lot of social hierarchy, and horses are a reflection of who you want to be seen as socially. And long riders and equestrian travelers aren't like that. It's about Tim going out and finding a reliable, affordable, good horse, and he puts a saddle on that animal, and these two species then set off on a journey of inner and outer exploration. It's got nothing to do with somebody giving you a blue ribbon because you give it to yourself. Fantastic! Yeah, well, now you're now you're selling me on this. Maybe I could do it. I don't know though. I'm a bit. I'm a bit. I'm a bit like you know. I live in the suburbs here. I'd be like checking my email on my phone all the time. Well, I'll give you a good example. <laughs> I'll give you a good example of this and how this affects people. One of the original founding members is a guy from Maine named DC Vision. And this guy had never been near a horse, not on one, never stood next to one. Wow. And he set off on a journey across the United States with a Shire mare from a Maine logging camp. And he rode 14,000 miles nonstop to the United States. And so what you're talking about is not about taking horses and making them jump over painted sticks or making them stick their legs out in some sort of ornate gymnastic ballet movement. You're talking about you and your horse exploring part of the world. And there are things that you do and don't do, but these are things that everybody can do, and that's the difference. Yeah, you raise an interesting sort of point there, too, that I, I hadn't really considered even having read the book, but you crystallized it so well, too, that's like – it's really strange that back in the day, and we're talking like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever, uh, you know, almost everybody probably had a horse. Or the vast majority, you know, the majority of people probably had horses. And now it's like only, right. like only like these rich fat cats are the ones who can afford the horses. And normal people that have horses, you know, probably have to work like a second job to maintain the horse. It's like the, this law of supply and demand actually has really uh, been reversed. There, you're right about this, and, and there, there's a really interesting dimension to this, and it ties into deadly equines. And that is that, for the sake of argument, let's say we're talking about our great-grandfathers. You know, those people had access to the daily information about horses that most people today don't have a clue about. Right. I mean, these – there were just – you know, in, in the book I think I explain – no, I explain this in the Horse Travel Handbook I'm writing about. You know, when I try to tell people how you go about buying a horse, if I tell someone, can you go out and buy me a car? I mean, I, you can you can tell your little 18-year-old sister, go buy me a car, and she's going to go out and go, okay, let's see, the door closes, the odometer works, the gas tank doesn't leak, it starts, okay, the tires aren't flat, she'll bring you a car back. If you go say, go buy me a horse, she can't do it. And people used to have that sort of knowledge. Tim. Yeah. They could make journeys. They knew how to feed horses. They knew what horses were like. And part of what the Deadly Equine Project demonstrates is that there was a lot of information previously known to the equestrian world that's now been lost. Indeed, yeah. You're bringing this out you know, into the public eye again, which is uh, fantastic. Like I said, it changed my whole view of horses. Now, before we, we've already gone off on quite a Quite our side road here. Let's let's do the bio background. You know who is Cullen O'Reilly, and you know how did you get interested in horses? And take us sort of on your journey, and then how you discovered essentially the uh, the O'Reilly anomaly. Well, I have a twin background in uh, investigative journalism and in equestrian exploration. And um, I, I graduated from an American university and took my journalism degree there. I briefly worked for the Seattle Times as a city reporter. And then I was hired to start a very controversial journalism program um, 
which was headquartered in Peshawar, Pakistan, and I formulated the first um, journalism program uh, for the Afghan Mujahideen. I got all the different resistance leaders together, uh, and I got the best people they had, and I trained them to be journalists, and we put them into the country, and we were the first people to report on the jihad against the Soviets at that time. And when all that was finally finished, then I resumed my career as an equestrian explorer, and I made uh, journeys in Pakistan, and that resulted in my book called Kyber Nights. And um, then at the same time, you know, I, I was really reaching a crossroads here personally, and I had decided that, you know, equestrian exploration meant more to me than writing about what was happening in Seattle or, you know, any other big city. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt that there was a real need to preserve mankind's information about uh, about horses. And as I, as I explain in the book, you know, the whole concept of equestrian history right now is just, it's almost gone. And, and those books that are available are basically just parroting what's been said before. And so there is, I, I don't see very much evidence of any new sort of research. And I think that's really a sad thing and a, and a bad commentary on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. You point that out in the book, too, that you know, there's all these, you can take all kinds of crazy courses in colleges nowadays, but it seems like uh, there's a very limited amount that's around horses and horse history, and as you point out, horse archaeology, which is, you know, would you think that would be like second only to humans. You think you see all kinds of crazy stuff going on with horses throughout human history, so. Well, it's you know, strange. it's interesting that, um, uh, let's say, let's say, let's take the year 1900. In, in 1900, um, the, the, what they call, what they, what they described as the urban herd that lived inside London was so vast, you just couldn't believe it. I mean, there were so many hundreds of thousands of horses that lived in London, and they did everything. They, 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 they pulled the uh, trams, they delivered the goods, you know, they took people to work, they delivered the doctor to the patients. Horses were there, and they didn't just live in, you know, the little stable behind the house. They lived in sheds, they lived in alleys. There was one four-story uh, horse uh, stable there. Uh, and they jump over to New York, there was a stable in New York that was one city block. Wow. That's how big it was. We're talking maybe a thousand horses. Holy and, and Moses. The impact, the impact of these animals on human development had reached a pinnacle. And yet, when you look at what they were doing and the influence that they had on us as a species, and that wasn't very, very long ago. And now, where is it? And who's talking about it? You know, it's just been pushed right to the edge, and we just almost don't even discuss it. Yeah. I'm stunned to hear, you know, more about this. You know, just how prevalent these horses were. It's amazing. It's like a shared society that we, that we, you know, and we've cast them out from, uh, modern society. It's, it's, it's just bizarre well, you know, in a way, well, looking at the history when, of it. When, when you think about American culture, you know, we think about, well, I'll give you two names, John Wayne and John Ford. You know, think about the great Calvary movies with John Wayne in them. You know, and so he pulls his saber and he goes charge, and there he goes riding across Monument Valley. Meanwhile, back in New York, you probably had 500,000 horses living in that city. Um, and the things that happened there with horses on a daily basis were just, you know, you have to understand horses were as prevalent as cars, and people knew as much about them as cars. You know, I'll give you another example of history that may probably startle you. In 1872, there was a, a, a giant equine epidemic called the epizootic. Yeah, and it yeah, started this at a farm in book, Canada. Yeah, yeah. and it, it raced in, by, it started in September and it raced straight down to, to Cuba, went, went all as far as, uh, Panama. It raced all the way over to, Can- to California and it just decimated the entire equine population of North and Central America. 
And who remembers that today and talks about it? Well, yeah, and you point out in the book that it, it, to go beyond that, it decimated the population of horses, and then all the, you know, it's like what people say what would happen if the power went out nowadays. It's like all the city's ground to a halt because the horse, there was such a shortage of horses, right? Right, literally. I mean, Boston burned to the ground because there was a fire started in Boston, and they couldn't get the horses to pull the fire engines, and Boston burned, you know? Everything rotted in the harbor in New York. I mean, you know, the great story is uh, that um, the U.S. Cavalry was reduced to fighting the Apaches on foot because there was no horses in Arizona. So you look at what happened in 1872, and then you look at our dependency today on highways and trucks and that sort of system, and you can see the parallels, and it's pretty frightening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's frightening and amazing, really. Uh, that's like I said when I when I finished reading the book, and already just from this brief conversation we've had so far, I mean, I'm learning so much. So kudos to you, Colin, because uh, you know you're bringing some serious knowledge to the listeners. Now, how did you end up sort of? discovering the O'Reilly anomaly because, you know, you point out in the book that you really struggled with this as you first sort of came upon it and then decided, you know, to go all in on it because you just couldn't deny it anymore. So talk about, you know, that journey. I I, I think it's important to say, um, to explain to the listeners something, uh, something fundamental, and that is that humans have known that horses can consume protein different times. I mean, when the book was released, there were originally 18 different types of meat, including human, that we knew horses had eaten. And this had occurred in 30 countries over a space of 4,000 years. Yeah. And I, I, I'm writing what's now, um, I, I call it the, the horse travel handbook. It's actually bigger than that. It's the largest study of equestrian travel ever made. And it's going to uh, allow people to read the book and then undertake an, uh, a journey from Mongolia to Montana. It won't matter. You can go anywhere in the world with this book, and you can buy a horse and ride and explore. Hmm. And when I came to the point where I had to write about, well, what do you feed the horse, I had to reference information that I had collected over you know, decades. And I knew that, that people had fed horses meat. I had read this um, earlier when I first went to Afghanistan uh, before the, the Soviets invaded in the late 70s. I had already read then that the Swedish explorer Sven Adin had witnessed meat-eating horses in Tibet. And um, I recently was in contact with an editor, and I wrote, I said, when I saw the words on the page, I could see the words, but I couldn't accept it. I mean, it just went into my brain, but it never really, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't grasp it. Yeah. And the same thing happened in 1954 when National Geographic magazine reported that the entire Kazakh tribe fled the Chinese invasion and they rode meat-eating horses out of China into India. And there the words were right there on the page. It's November 1954 in National Geographic, meat-eating horses, a tribe of people, etc. And you look at it and you go, yeah, right. And then you keep thinking, you just keep moving on. And so what happened was with this project is that when I went to sit down and say, okay, and I need to summarize this. I need to tell long riders that if you're someplace you can feed horses, apricots, bananas, mangoes, grain, corn, sorghum. Oh, by the way, you can feed them meat. And I said, you know, I have some examples, but I just better take a look at this and see. Maybe I've overlooked something. And I'd say, Tim, I already had a lot of examples, most of them from central um, – uh, Asia from Tibet, and when I I stopped, this was in January. So I'll I'll just take a quick look, see if it's any you know, see how much bigger it might be. Right. And I was really floored. I I couldn't believe what was there right in front of me, uh, in front of all of us. I mean, it's literally you know you see those those trick 
pictures where you you look at the picture and you go, oh, you know, it's it's one it's one kind of picture, and then you you realize, oh wait a minute, there's something else in there. Mm-hmm. You know those 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 kind of images. That's what it was with this. I mean, when you know what to look for, the evidence was just suddenly all in front of me, and uh, that's what happened. Interesting. Okay, so. Just amazing stuff. Let's talk about some of the evidence because that's, you know, what uh, is particularly interesting throughout the book. Um, you know, I've, I have a, just a boatload of notes here. So, you know, instead of asking you about all of the sort of ancient cases, you know, why don't you talk a little bit just sort of about how these things have shown up in, in, in the ancient times. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book uh, King Diomedes and his savage equines, this whole story with Alexander the Great, um, the dappled demon of Japan. So this is something that not only spans thousands of years, as you say, but many countries as well, especially now looking here in the ancient stuff. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting that uh, you brought up Alexander the Great and the Dappled Demon, because um, I, you know, most of us uh, in in the West, Western Europe and and North America and Australia, um, we uh, have been told this fairy tale that, well, little 12-year-old Alexander trained, I mean, you know, Bucephalus, his mighty war horse, was afraid of his shadow, and he moved the horse around, and he jumped on his back. And in fact, as the book explains, there was a much darker story. Bucephalus was a notorious uh, man-killing, meat-eating horse, and the young prince, Alexander, went into this enclosure and got on that horse and rode him, thereby uh, demonstrating his courage and his ability to overcome this dreadful monster. Now, that story was, like, pretty shocking, but within a couple of days, I discovered a mirror image of that story that happened 1,850 years later, 8,000 miles away in Japan. The Japanese have a story also about a young prince who um, encounters another vicious, meat-eating, man-killing horse, and he also rises to power by the same action. So what it demonstrates is that mankind, mankind has known about this and that the evidence has been there, and it's only in the last 75 years that this has largely been suppressed. Indeed, yeah, yeah. So, like, it was probably like common knowledge kind of back in the day, maybe back in, you know, I'm thinking about like the 1800s in America and stuff that, that horses uh, could eat meat. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that you point out in the book that you, you sort of make the distinction that there, we have two threads here that are running throughout the book, and they obviously cross at various times. But as you say in the book, it's the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. So we're talking about two separate sort of traits, if you will. There's the meat-eating right. part, and then there's also... This idea, and you point out in the book numerous times, you know, that the common misconception amongst the mainstream is that uh, the horse is a is an animal of prey, that it does not, you know, uh, go out. It's not predatory. But as you say in the book, there's evidence that that's not the case at all. So we're talking about, like I said, meeting and murderous, a.k.a. predatory horses, like two separate traits that you've uncovered here. Uh, and as you say, they cross at various points, too. Absolutely. Um I talk in, in the book um, about material that was supplied by uh, um, Professor Richard Bullitt of Cornell and how he talks about uh, what, how horses uh, operate in our world, how we view them today. And he has a theory called post-domesticity. Um, and what it is is that um, horses are now seen as almost fantasy figures. You know, they're gentle, they're quiet, they're angelic. You know, they're descended from Atlantis. These sort of things that you know, they're there's no, they're, they're just romantic figures, and and we see them in a very idealized way. They, you know, horses have big eyes like babies, 
and, and people see them and they gravitate to them and they, and they look beautiful. And what we don't appreciate, most of us in the modern world, because we don't live with horses on a daily basis like our predecessors did, is that horses can be incredibly dangerous. And the deciding factor with me about making this separate book uh, like I said, originally I was just going to mention meat-eating horses in terms of equestrian exploration. But um, I discovered that in the year 2007, a child had been um, killed uh, in a really savage way in Australia. And I thought, you know, and I really I really grappled with this. I thought, you know, I, I don't need this. I don't want to do this. I, I just don't want the hassle of this. But I thought, well, you know, it, it, he was just an infant. I think he was 18 months old. And I thought, you know, maybe... I ought to say something, you know, there's an ethical situation here. Maybe I ought to warn the public. And so I did that. Uh, I, that was a deciding factor in doing the book. But what's interesting, I think, is what happened after the book was released. Because um, almost immediately, uh, there was five similar in incidents uh, where um, other people, uh, including children, were also found to have been just absolutely savagely killed. And this gets back to the murderous part of horses. Uh, you know, they're very dangerous. They're, they're not the benign, quiet little creatures that we like to think they are. Yeah, yeah. Spooky stuff. Spooky. I've only been around a horse like twice, and uh, they, they're kind of off-putting to me, so maybe I sensed it. I don't know. <laughs> but I always think back to Christopher Reeve. If a horse can fell Superman, then there's something un unsavory about them in a way. A little bit that makes me nervous, I guess. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, it, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're a well-read guy. You've traveled. You've done things. You know, you know a lot of different kinds of things, and yet you've got this, this sort of creepy instinct that you know that maybe they're not what I think they are. Maybe I ought to be a little cautious. You know, look, if you're 12 years old and you see the movie um, The Omen and you think, "Whoa, Rottweilers, kind of bad dogs. Better be careful the next time I see one." Yeah. Now that's perfectly acceptable in today's modern world. But horses, you know, people look at me, oh, no, no, I mean, you're, you know, your, your girlfriend or your sister or her mom will say, oh, no, no, horses won't hurt you. They're, they're gentle herbivores. And yet your instinct tells you something. And what history demonstrates is that you're right and they're wrong, okay? Because horses can and do do absolutely incredible acts of viciousness. And that's what the book's got so much evidence of. Yeah, yeah. Shocking stuff in the book, too, with regards to that kind of stuff. Uh, well, let's let's do one of these stories. Let's. Can you tell us the story of, uh, let's talk about the man-eater of uh, Ode. You know, it's an interesting thing about this story. Um, this story happened in the 1820s, and um, the British monarchs were in, um, they, they had a, a policy of, of occasionally giving very fine equines as a gift to other monarchs. Uh, later on in the 1840s, for example, they sent some beautiful draft horses to uh, the Maharaja of the Sikhs. But this was this predated that. In the 1820s, King George IV sent um, a valuable thoroughbred stallion to the Maharaja of Oud in, in India, in the Prince's State of India. And a few years later, uh, an early English journalist named... Um, Oh, his name slips my mind right now. William Knighton. That's right, of course, Knighton. Knighton was there. So Knighton and another Englishman were in a carriage going to have lunch with the Maharaja when they uh, see uh, a dead body uh, uh, in the streets, and the body has been just savage, just torn to bits. It's almost unrecognizable. And they um, are wondering what's happened when an Indian soldier on a rooftop 
yells at them to get out of the street that the man-eater is loose. And they had heard about this infamous horse, and they saw this animal coming, this horse coming at them with a dead child in its mouth. And when it saw the two men, now this is interesting, it didn't flee, it had a, it had a decision to make. It saw the two Englishmen and it came after them. And so they turned the carriage and they bolted themselves. They dashed the carriage into a compound, shut the gates and saved their lives. And um, that's when they first met this horse. And of course, then the horse was later recaptured and he's put into a ring with a tiger, and he defeats the tiger, just literally kicks the hell out of it, breaks his jaw and defeats it. But what's so interesting about this example is, you know, you can say, why did this horse do this? I mean, this horse had a choice. You know, if you think about a, if, a, if a cow escapes from your grandfather's pasture and runs off into the forest, he doesn't lurk in the trees waiting for granddad to come out so he can <laughs> eat him, does he? No, no. But that's what this horse did. This English horse got loose and then systematically went through the streets of Lucknow killing people and tearing them apart. And, you know, what we can understand and what, what there is no debate about today is why this happened. And I'm going to reference back here real quickly to the original episode. Um, the first child that was killed was in Australia in, new, in 2007. And I just recently got um, new evidence in of a terrible killing in Oklahoma. And like the man-eater of Lucknow, there was a horse that had a decision. He was in a pasture. There was a fence between him and the front yard of a house. There was a four-year-old child in the front yard. This horse jumped the fence and tore the kid to pieces in front of his parents and killed him. So we're talking about a kind of equine behavior that most people don't know exists and have a hard time grasping that, you know, how can this be possible? And yet right now there are no answers. Weird stuff. Just weird. Yeah, that's an amazing story to uh, the the man eater of Lucknow because just it's it's as you said eighteen twenty. Yeah, eighteen twenty. Yeah, so we're talking maybe nearly about two hundred years ago, and, and this is back when things were fairly sophisticated. This isn't some campfire story this guy's telling. He's a he's an English journalist who went down there and, no, no, and documented let me, this. Let, let me jump in and say something. Within 48 hours, no, I'll say 24 hours, within 24 hours of the book being released, I got an email in from the British long writer Penny Turner. Now, Penny Turner is British, but she lives in Greece, and she sent me evidence from India. That's kind of how, you know, the new world works. Mm -hmm. And she said, I just read about the man-eater of luck now. You better look at this YouTube video. And I think I probably sent you the link to that. And there is YouTube video, which was just recently taken in Bombay, India, and it's an example of the same equine savage behavior repeating itself in the modern world. A horse is loose in the streets of, of Bombay, you know, Mumbai as they call it nowadays, yeah. and a man tries to go up and hit it with a rock, and the horse just misses tearing out this guy's throat, grabs him and shakes him viciously and then attacks this human. And if you read about the man-eater of Lucknow, and then you look at the YouTube video, you can see the links between the equine behavior. So this has definitely not gone away. It's still among us. Yeah. I don't know if you sent me that or not. I'll have to check again. Uh, I'll let you know, because I want to see that video now. It's very shocking. All of this is shocking. I mean, to anyone who, as you said, and, and kind of point out in the book, you know, this Disneyfication of, uh, of horses... You know, then you hear these stories and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I, 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 as you said, I'm right to be spooked out by, well, they're massive creatures. That's what, 
people don't understand if you've never been near one. I mean, like I said, I've only been next to one like twice, and they're huge, man. They're like, they're scary big. Well, you know, I, I was really shocked when uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the famous author of Sherlock Holmes, he wrote a lot of other things. And Arthur Conan Doyle described the horse as the most uh, frightening and savage creature in the animal kingdom. Now you think, wait a minute. You know, you think of lions or, I mean, you know, rhinoceroses or elephants. You don't think of the horse being that way. But when we, let's go back to what you just said. When you think of a 1,200-pound animal with hooves like steel, with a big, long neck, with savage teeth, and when he lays his ears back and he comes at you, then you're in a lot of trouble. And you know, let's look at some. Let's look at another one of the stories that's in the book, the uh, the infamous story of Lisette. The, the French mayor in the Napoleonic War. This horse was uh, in the campaign in Russia with Napoleon, and her rider, the French officer, surrounded by Russian attacking soldiers, rips the skin off one guy's face. You know, he's described as looking like a living death's head mask, and then grabs an officer um, by the stomach, carries this guy out of the field of battle, disembowels him. I mean, when you think about what horses can physically do to human beings, you you have a very good reason to be afraid. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. I remember that story from the book. It's like, ooh, you know. Well, actually, there's <laughs> another story now, because an English author, an expert on the Napoleonic era, named Jonathan Hopkins, uh, contacted me after the book was released and said, "Oh, there's another episode." Turns out that there was an English horse, uh, an Arab mare, called Fatima. And she was ridden by an English officer uh, fighting against Napoleon's troops in Spain. And she not only um, uh, attacked the, the French troops, but she had, a, she had a bad habit of eating all of her officers' food and the, and the food that belonged to the men. They used to have to tie their food up in sacks and tie it up in tree limbs to keep the food from Fatima. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> crazy stuff, man. Just absolutely crazy stuff. I, I just, I loved this book so much because you just you're uncovering so much uh, material that I never even heard of, or, or you know, just does not make it out to the mainstream at all. Well, hopefully, this book will change that. Now, what I thought, speak, speaking of that sort of uh, idea of this, this stuff being excised from the mainstream, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the use of horses in the exploration of the North and South Pole, which I thought was really interesting because. Again, you think of the North and South Pole, you almost always think about dog sleds. You never really hear about the horses, and it sounds like the, the, the meat-eating aspect of, of the horse behavior is what made it such a key, uh, I guess you could say, asset in, in these explorations. Um, you know, because the Long Riders Guild um, documents all different types of equestrian exploration, um, we had known that um, there were horses that were used in um, uh, the original effort to try to reach the North Pole, and we also definitely knew that they had been used in Antarctica. But we didn't know the links and how they connected back and forth. And we were, of course, completely in the dark um, about the meat-eating aspect of this. But as the book explains, um, the Siberian culture has a special horse uh, called the Yakut horse, and these horses routinely live in minus 60-degree weather. And I don't mean just live in it. I mean the guy, the Yakut horsemen go out, and they get on their horses, and they ride around on, this, on yeah. these animals 
because, you know, they're used to this. Horses and humans are. And there was an Englishman named Frederick Jackson Turner. Uh, he made a 3,000-mile trip across Siberia with these horses. And then he was asked to um, explore the Arctic Circle, and he took some of these horses into the Arctic, and he was shocked to discover that they ate polar bear meat. And they were so hardy, and they did so well uh, that he wrote about it in his book. So when Sir Ernest Shackleton, uh, the, the Irish explorer, decided that he was going to try to reach the South Pole, uh, he had a conference with Jackson and was uh, encouraged to take horses to Antarctica. So now you've got Siberia, the Arctic Circle, and now you've got it linked to Antarctica. And Shackleton took horses to Antarctica. But what's really, really interesting is that Shackleton knew, of course, there's no grass, there's no grain. So he did take compressed fodder, you know, uh, some sort of green feed, and he took corn. But already by uh, 1910, the British Army was well aware that horses could eat meat. It's actually, I explain in the book, it's actually in the British Cavalry Manual mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they can eat meat. So Shackleton conferred with the British military, and the British military at the Aldershot Military Depot um, came up with something called the Maji Ration, which is a meat-based ration for horses. And Shackleton fed his horses meat in Antarctica. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about an episode now, not just of exploration history, but of equestrian history that's just dropped off the earth. Um, and when this was revealed on the giant um, explorer's web, it's called X-Web, um, there was just a, a shocking silence from the, the polar community. Uh, they, you know, they had, they, they, like you said earlier, Tim, um, everyone says, oh, you know, dogs, sleds, uh, you know, the great race between the English and the Norwegians, Amundsen and Scott. And, um, you know, there was actually two uh, equestrian ex- uh, exploration teams down in Antarctica at the same time, and they both had horses that ate meat. So you're talking about a whole section of, uh, of equestrian history that has just been erased, gone. It's so strange. I mean, we'll get into sort of like why that's happened uh, as we go along, but that's just so strange. And, you know, to the people out there that are skeptical, Colin points out right now just that, you know, we're talking about the uh, the British War Manual from the 19... 19- 1910s, I guess you could say. 1913, I think, is the one that you cite in the book. I mean, we're talking about, like, official government <laughs> documents here, which are saying that, that feeding horses meat is is what goes on, is what can be done, is what should be done. So, well, I mean, you there, can't, there's, it's there's undeniable a, sort of proof in a way, you know? This gets back to, an, to another link that we suspect now. You know, imagine if you if you can. You know, if you, there's a big flat table in front of us, and let's say that we've got all these little black dots, and you go, okay, I'm going to put one dot here, and then you move another dot. Oh wait a minute, this—it's sort of like a puzzle. Wait, oh wait, this piece fits this, and then as you sort of work on it and think about it and ponder it and and look at it, you say, wait a minute, I'm kind of putting things together here. Well, what we now are beginning to wonder is. Where did the British military get the idea to feed horses meat? Now, we do know that there had been a, a sort of a remote reference to um, a siege earlier in European history where horses had eaten meat. But that probably wasn't enough of the cavalry to come up with this conclusion. But what we now are wondering is, did the British military get the idea from Tibet? Because in, at the turn of the 20th century, the British military invaded Tibet. And the Tibetans, we now know, fed their horses meat and they feed them blood. And we're wondering if that expedition under um, a guy named Young Husband, we're wondering if the British cavalry officers who went into Tibet realized that horses were, omnivor- were omnivorous and they could be fed hor- uh, meat and blood. And did that 
information then returned to London, make it into the Calvary Manual, and is that what gave them the idea to come up with the Maji ration that went to Antarctica? We don't know yet. That's speculation. But you can see how we're kind of going in that direction. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does seem like, based on the stories in the book, too, that, you know, and we'll, we'll sort of get into uh, the, the pros and cons of all, all this in, in, in modern times uh, in a little bit. But it's like it seems like in the book, based on the stories, that feeding the meat to these horses is actually kind of beneficial. It makes them stronger and more prepared for these arduous journeys, which I thought was interesting, too. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the sort of that, that they're eating it just to get by, in a sense. They're eating it because it's beneficial to the trip. It's beneficial to the horse. Um, you know, it's actually good for the creature. We have to ask ourselves, why do we care what a horse eats? I mean, I, I, th- I thought about this I thought before I, before I talked to you. I was, I was thinking, you know, if I'm watching a baseball team, and I see some great pitcher up on the mound, and he, you know, he throws a no-hitter. And I think, wow, that was a fantastic athletic performance. I don't think about what did he have for breakfast. Okay? <laughs> I don't have a dogmatic belief that, you know, this guy's a vegetarian, therefore he's more pure. I think, what a great no-hitter. Okay? So why do we, this is the question I'm going to pose to your listeners, why do we as a culture have a problem with what a horse consumes? I mean, what does a horse do? A horse gives us emotional relief. He frees us from gravity. And he uh, liberates us from the prejudices of the village. And so these are the three traditional things that he's always done for us. And what he eats doesn't affect what he does. And so if you look at cultures like Bhutan, where horses are eating meat right now, they're eating yak meat, or Kazakhstan, where they're still feeding them um, different meats, if you look at cultures in the East that don't have a problem with this concept, then you look at the the, the cultures like America and England who are gra- really grappling with this, you have to ask yourself why. And is this personal? Is this cultural? Is this national? Um, or, you know, I mean, I, I really don't have the answer yet, but, you know, this is where some of the opposition is coming from. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that either. Just it, it, it seems like it must be cultural because you, you look at sort of there's sort of this like weird food bias anyway in, in America as it is. I mean, we're a very sort of a constricted country, even though it's such a free place. You know, we, we police ourselves in a sense where it's, you know, there's no swearing or nudity on TV, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the government's trying to mess with people what they can eat all the time. So it's, you know, there's sort of a weird food hang up anyway. So I can kind of see maybe how that would also extend to horses. You touched on this this story here uh, earlier in the conversation. That's Ernest Schaefer, the German explorer who filmed the horses eating uh, the blood meal in Tibet. What I thought was interesting you point out in the book is that uh, it sort of jumps over a roadblock in a sense of the meat-eating horse idea where it's like uh, these Tibetan horses prove or indicate that meat-eating is not something that is done in times of necessity or emergency when it comes to these horses, it's just part of their diet. So it sort of eliminates the whole idea where it's like, yeah, they can eat meat, but only in extreme circumstances when you have nothing else to feed them. But it's like, no, actually, you know, it can be a part of their regular diet. It's not just it's not just something you do when you when there's no grass left. Yeah, the book has some. Um, when I, back in January, when I started looking for um, relevant modern examples of what uh, people viewed or how they defined horses in, um, in Europe and North America. I came across some, some really astonishing um, blanket statements. Um, and you, you go to, you know, allexperts.com and, 
you know, Susie Bloggs is an expert on horses, and Susie says horses are herbivores, and if you feed the meat, it will kill them. You know, and I think, gee, Susie, uh, you might want to kind of, you know, reconsider that. But no, 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 that's just the way it is. And there's lots of statements like that, and they're all they're all linking into each other, and, and they're all very um, they're very committed. Uh, you know, this is the way it is, and you know, by God, there's no there's no discussing it. Um, but like you just brought up, um, there's lots of evidence, and there's other cultures that indicate otherwise. And um, I think this gets back to how I discussed in the book about the concept of willful blindness. Um, you know, people, we have to kind of under, we have to, I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, why are we holding on to this idea? You know, is that cultural? Is that linguistic? Is that sexual? I mean, what I'm discovering is that a lot of the people that are against this idea are women because they have an idealized view of horses. Um, the Society of the Military Horse, which is largely, you know, cavalry guys, they go, oh, yeah, well, sure, why not? Um, and this isn't to say that lots of the evidence coming in isn't from women, but um, I think women more than men have um, more of a, of a romanticized view of horses, and that may be part of this. Interesting, interesting. Well, I... Yeah. <laughs> Sort of like there's so many threads to pull on here. It's uh, just amazing. I'm sort of moving through my notes here as we go across uh, across the the pages here of the book. And what I also thought was interesting is that you you know as I said this thing's just chock full of making the case for the meat eating horses. You point out that the teeth, the jaw, the digestive system of the horses are pretty much the same or very similar to humans. You know there, there's no major sort of differences, which which indicates that. You know, omnivorous behavior is possible. It could happen. It's not. It's not something that, like you said, the the expert said. If you feed a horse meat, it'll die. It's like no, that's not the case at all. So, according to what you've uncovered here, the, the teeth, the jaw, the digestive system are all up to snuff, if you will, for meat consumption. Right. Right. You know, it's um. Let's 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 you and the listeners and I let's back up a minute. Let's go back to something that uh, let's look at science and science. Let's look at the dictionary. Mm-hmm. And the dictionary says that an omnivore. An omnivore is a is a is an organism, a plant. I mean, an animal that eats plants and animals. You know, now uh, you, you know if you eat um, lettuce on your hamburger, you're an omnivore. And what we are discussing is the possibility that a horse can be an omnivore. Now, when the book was released, we had 18 different examples of different kinds of meat that we knew horses had eaten: antelope. Polar bear, I'm trying to remember them all, moose, seals, whale meat. Okay, that was, we came out with 18 different examples. Um, but within the first 72 hours of the book being released, I mean, more evidence just kept pouring in. Um, we knew about, then we knew about uh, horses in Arabia being, uh, being fed raw camel meat. We knew about a horse in America that ate live crayfish. We discovered that the BBC had filmed horses eating live crabs off a beach. Huh. And within, I think, the first week, we had a guy write us and say, uh, I, I finished reading the book, and I was really curious, so I went out and I offered my horse uh, a pound of ground beef, and he ate it, raw ground beef. And I thought, well, you know, that's my definition of an omnivore. Um, and so yeah, I think that's what we have to look at here. You know, the, the definition is one thing. Here's the evidence. Now, you know, make up your mind about it. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like such an open and shut thing. It seems like such a such an easy sort of uh you know, it shouldn't be there shouldn't be an argument about it. But it actually I guess leads to sort of what we're talking about now, which is sort of uh the reaction to the book, 
and and you know as you point out in the book the intellectual equestrian vacuum and just how how this whole thing has sort of been just pushed off the table pushed off the radar like why what was i guess we'll just to start in that in that realm of discussion what was the What's been the reaction to the book since it's come out? It sounds like it's been overwhelmingly positive from the lay people, and maybe I, I, maybe I was um, I was contacted by a, a, a really respected Swedish horseman, and um, it was about two weeks after the book had been released. He said, "Where are the haters?" And I wrote back and I said, I, "You know, I don't know. I, I'm 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 waiting for the deluge of hate mail to come in, and it hasn't showed up. Um, and what has?" What has arrived is uh, enough new evidence to um, to put out a second edition. Oh, wow. Definitely enough for that. There's no doubt about that. And people overwhelmingly saying, you know, these are average horse. Now, I'm not talking about experts. I'm not talking about editors. I'm talking about just average horse people who are writers and readers, writing and going, ah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand. Now, that, that you know, that, that explains why someone's, why such a thing happened. And so the horse world, by and large, has said, okay, open-minded, look at the evidence. And like you earlier described the book, you said there's so much evidence there. Well, at the end of the book, you go, uh, well, I'm a little shocked. I was squeamish. But upon reflection, I think it's probably right. I think horses could be capable of doing this. But there's an example that I really want to um, share with you and your listeners, and, and that's the reception that the book got from two vastly different audiences. When the book was released, um, there was a, a website devoted to cryptozoology, mm-hmm. and it got picked up really quickly. And uh, the people basically said, said, you know, what a load of crap and what a load of hokum and forget it. And, you know, I, I just don't buy it. So I went in there and I read, and I don't do, Facebook and that kind of stuff. So, but I, I went in there. I registered. Look, this is who I am, and here's the evidence. And they were very receptive and really, really polite. And they went, "Wow, you know what? I think you're right." Well, about a week later, the far end of the spectrum, uh, an anti cryptozoology forum, you know, anti Bigfoot, anti UFO, anything. Uh, you know, the skeptics, if that's what you want to call it, they waited in and said, oh, my God, here's this ridiculous book. And once again, I introduced myself and I presented the evidence. And they, too, very polite, very open-minded, went, you know what? I think you're right. And what I think is so important about these two audiences is that they're not equestrian. They're just people. And if you sit down with them, you say, okay, look, I'll just put it on the table and you decide. And I think that's what I'm talking about. You know, you're such a great example of this, Tim. I mean, you, you look at the book, you go, well, I don't know. You know, I see a lot of kooky stuff in my life, and I don't know. And at the end of the book, you go, you know what? I think the guy's kind of right. And that's what these two audiences proved. I mean, if you put the evidence on the table, there it is. And there's so much overwhelming evidence for this that I think that's what most people who have seen the book have said. They say, yeah, I think he's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I highly encourage people to pick up this book. It'll change your your perspective on the animal. It really, not just horses, but the animal kingdom in general. It's made me a little bit sort of keep an eye on all sorts of stuff uh, with regards to what animals re- may really be capable of. Um, now, you say sort of you've gotten the good response from the lay people. What about, as you point out in the book, you know, the horse industry, despite the fact that it seems like less and less people are owning horses all the time, is actually like a multi million dollar industry. And a lot rides on that romanticized version of the horse. 
So you come along, you know, riding in on your man-eating horse, and, and you know, I'm sure that it's created a stir, you know, in, in the big money sectors of the horse industry. So what's been the, sort of the reaction of, you know, the, the money players, if you will? Well, it's, it's interesting because um, the host of America's largest equestrian radio show contacted me immediately. And... Um, I, I, and I don't know this guy, and I said, yeah, I know who you are. Okay, what do you, you know, what do you want to talk about? And he said, I want to talk about this book. And uh, I said, all right, I'll send it to you. And he looked at it, and he says, you know, my God. And uh, now this is a guy who is a very knowledgeable horseman. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an author himself. He's a equestrian historian. And at the beginning of his show, he said, uh, I think this is one of the most important shows I've ever done, and I have to warn the audience, you're going to have to keep an open mind. And... At the end of the, at the end of the interview, he said, "This book has uh, um, redefined horses for us." Now, you know, this is a guy who has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, and yet he had the editorial courage to say that on, you know, live on air. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is that there are two different kinds of editors um, in the equestrian world. Uh, the, the independent editors are, are willing to look at the evidence and go. Okay, yeah, let's look at it. Let's talk about it. Let's consider the possibility. Let's give it to our readers. And remember, there's something really important here. There's an ethical consideration. You're talking about horses perpetrating acts of incredible savagery that um, absolutely destroy human bodies. I mean, the, the way that they kill people is just off the scale. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself, as an editor, do I tell the public that horses are capable of more than just biting and kicking. So there have been cases uh, in London and in, um, in, in the United States where the editors of two of the world's largest equestrian magazines have said, absolutely, no way, under any circumstances, are we going to discuss this issue or tell our readers about it. Huh. And uh, I think that that's, um, that's shocking, really shocking. Yeah, that is shocking. It's That's just ridiculous. You know, you wonder... Did they even read the book? No. <laughs> I no, no, no. I offered them the book. I showed them all the evidence. I told them about all the new evidence that continued to pour in. The, let, the editor of um, – I'm going to be honest with you. The editor of Horse and Hound magazine, which is the largest equestrian magazine in England, she wrote and she said, based upon my 10 years of experience as the editor of this English magazine, I do not believe this is possible. And I wrote back and said, well, I'm sorry. Based upon 4,000 years of evidence in human history, you know, you, 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 you might consider being mistaken. And she said, I don't care. I'm not telling them. I'm not telling the readers. And Western horsemen in America flat refused to tell anybody. Now, I think you have to ask yourself um, a couple of really interesting points about these magazines. And because you don't follow the equestrian industry, mm -hmm. I, I have to say this to your listeners, that equestrian magazines, by and large, are they're declining. Their readership is falling off sharply. And they, they're not followed, you know, thanks to all the new media that we have. Um, you know, you don't have to get the monthly magazine to find out how to do something or whatever. So it took me about four weeks to understand what was happening. And it finally dawned on me, wait a minute. It's not the readers that matter to the editors. It's the advertisers. And I thought that's what it is. They don't want to upset the advertisers. They don't want to upset the status quo. They don't want to upset the way the horse is perceived because there is a um, there's an entrenched view, and it makes money. And right. So the, a book like this comes along, and it shocks everyone. 
Exactly, yeah. And we're talking about specialized advertisers here. This isn't like Bud Light or something like that. This is like some dude selling horse equipment and stuff. They don't want people to start getting concerned about horses and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm friends with the art editor of, a, of, a, of an equestrian magazine in London, and, uh, you know, the, the spring fashion edition is one of the big things, you know. What colored jodhpurs are the girls going to be wearing this year? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not making that up. That's the truth. And so, uh, you know, when you're selling, you know, unicorn books and wallpaper, um, and, you know, you want, you know, people to buy pony stuff, you don't want them to think, uh, um, you know, about this kind of stuff. In fact, I, I joked with one of the editors and I said, well, for all those fathers who are being plagued by little girls, you know, who want writing lessons or even worse, asking their daddies to buy them a horse, I suggest that you give these little girls a copy of Deadly Equines and have them read them at night. Yeah, that would eliminate that whole uh, daddy buy me a pony thing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said that that touches on something, and, you know, we're, we're obviously, you know, we don't want to get in, into some kind of, like, battle of the sexes here, but you do point out that it seems like you've gotten a lot of resistance from, from women who who romanticize the the horses and stuff. Is that sort of also no. indicative of like the whole industry in a sense? You know, you, you described this conversation with the, the woman who's the editor of, of the thing. So you wonder if that goes through all the whole industry. I, I, I think that, that they, um, a large percentage of the modern um, westernized uh, equestrian industry is aimed at uh, competition and, uh, and to a female market. Um, and you have to ask yourself, uh, now this goes back to a broader issue, and why did men leave the, the equestrian world? You know, we don't use them on farm, we don't use horses on farms, we don't ride them to war, and we don't travel on them. Now that's changing things to the long runner scale. You know, men are just, you know, on horses all over the world now, and it's growing like, like wildfire. Um, but in a market that is um, aimed at making, you know, horses, you know, surrogate emotional companions, the idea that he might nip your arm off is a bit, you know, a bit upsetting. Uh, and yet, this gets back. I, I want to be really clear about this to your readers. Um, I'm sorry, to your listeners. Um, the, the people that are writing in are men and women, and the, the women are coming in with some incredible examples uh, of evidence that is just—it's just absolutely shocking. Uh, an American professor wrote and said that this explains why my uncle was killed. That there was a family story. Uh, her uncle uh, was a famous horse trainer, and they didn't know what had happened. And he was uh, uh, basically murdered by a horse in a stall. And the evidence now shows that this is probably what happened. And we just recently received an absolutely astonishing story from America uh, about a horse in 1958. And this is not only the first gelding that we know about, but it's also the first horse that hunted down and killed other animals and ate them and attacked people. And that also came from a, from a woman. So the evidence is coming in from humans, period. Okay, but the marketing is aimed largely uh, at, at a female market, and, and that's that. It gets back to corporate decisions, not not people, because mm -hmm. the horse people that I'm in contact with are incredibly open-minded. Doesn't yeah. matter if they're men or women. Yeah, we, we sort of have talked about the impact this book's made on the equestrian industry. Now, when you're sort of dealing, I wouldn't even call this paranormal. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even really know what, I guess almost cryptozoological is kind of what we're in the realm of here. But, you know, in, when you're in the realm of, of, the, of the fringe, if you will, you know, it's always sort of predicated that you get science on, on board. So what's been the reaction of the scientific community to deadly equines? There hasn't been any. I, I've been receiving... Um, uh, messages saying, 
um, let's see, who was it that wrote me the other day? Somebody wrote me the other day and said that this should prompt the scientific community into investigating the possibilities that you've raised. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, let me, let me back this up and say something important. I'm an investigative reporter and a journalist and a historian and a question explorer. I am not a scientist. Right. I mean, I don't pretend to be a scientist. All I did was try to present all the material as I could in as mo- in the most objective manner as possible. Now, I would think that given the, the collection that's now available, somebody in the scientific world, be they biologists, zoologists, you know, dietitians, they ought to be going, wait a minute, maybe there's something to this. Because obviously, if this evidence has been there continually for as long as we've known about horses, and it's it's happening right now as we talk about this, then, you know, it doesn't take, you know, you don't have to be very smart to understand there could be some very serious scientific implications here. Absolutely, yeah. You you hit the nail on the head. As soon as I finished reading the book, I, I, I thought to myself, well, someone should be doing some kind of scientific study to to confirm or, or lay to waste this sort of the theory, I guess you could say, uh, or, well, or I, the anomaly. But it seems like it's, I, it's a given. I mean, it's hard to even say that someone should be trying to prove whether or not this is true because the evidence clearly says that it is. But it's like, like I said, you need the science. Everybody seems science is our new god, you know, and it's like you need science to, to back it up. And I feel like it's stunning that no one's gotten on board to, to you know, you, they, they, you think they'd have the, the money – in mind, or the, or the prestige of proving this, in a sense. So I'm just surprised no one's gotten on board to to really investigate well, this. You know, the book starts with a quote from Professor Stephen Gould, and it says, "The most erroneous stories are those we think we know best, and therefore never scrutinize or question." And people, this gets back to the what I call equestrian amnesia. Now, this doesn't just have to do with equestrian diet. This is just about anything with horses. Um, if if horses aren't connected to some sort of competitive national event, people, you know, largely ignore them. Unless, of course, you're talking about North America and then you're talking about the, the emotional buttons of horse slaughter and BLM Mustangs, and there's some, there's some issues there. Um, but what we ought to be discussing is, you know, what does this mean and why isn't this being discussed? Uh, you know, why isn't this being some sort of – why isn't some scientist come step forward and go, wait a minute, they're, 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 this is really intriguing. But I think what we have to realize is that this now that this is on the table, and yes, this isn't going to go away. I mean, and like I said, the evidence just – I mean, I just keep getting the emails. I just keep coming in. Okay, here's another example. I can put that one over there in that classification. Um, but the book talks about how in 1960, uh, young Jane Goodall, who wasn't even a doctor at the time. She was just some amateur living in the bushes and in the bush in Africa. She was the first person to ever witness chimps eating meat. And it took the scientific world by storm. And they, you know, they, no way. Now, chimps eat meat. Or, you know, I'm sorry. You know, what are you doing out there in the brush? No way. <laughs> but now we understand that chimps do eat meat. We now know the hippos eat meat. And I think same with the horses. I think with time, people are going to go, yeah, we now know that horses are capable of omnivorous action and that they can be incredibly savage. Um, but it's going to take some. It's going to take a little while for people to largely grasp that. I think. Right, right. And what you've done here with the book is sort of light, you know, light that fuse of change. Which is, you know, kudos to you for doing that, for having the courage to go out there and and, and say this in the face of, you know, what could be fantastic ridicule or scorn from the equestrian community. I mean, you really stepped up to the plate here and and uh, trying to change people's point of view on this, which is commendable because, like I said, after I finished the book, it was, you know, I don't have a vested interest in what horses eat. Like you said earlier, you said, what difference does it make? You know, so either, having, yeah. having finished the book, it was like, okay, you know, 
just change that that thought in my head that horses are omnivores. I mean, uh, that horses are herbivores because they're omnivores, clearly, uh, based on what I've learned here. i got to tell you something. Um, the book was a week old, and um, a French horseman stopped by at my house and uh, came in and uh, was talking to him. And um, my wife showed him the book, and she starts talking to him in French. And, uh, you know, he couldn't read the English, but he put the pictures. Yeah, and? Well, yeah, but, you know, the horses eat meat. Yeah, and he says, well, you know, we feed our horses meat flour. And she said, what? Yeah, yeah, we got this flour, a special flour here in France, and we take all the excess refuse meat and offal, and we make a special meat, uh, flour, and it's brown, and, uh, you know, we give it to the horses, it gives them extra energy. You didn't know that? No. <laughs> so uh, the guy leaves, and five minutes later, we're on the Internet, and bingo, there's a picture, and for six euros a kilo, you can feed your horse meat here in France anytime you want. And uh, it gets back to what you said. You said this much earlier. Um, you said... Does this give horses extra energy? You know, if you look at history, I mean, the famous British bandit, Dick Turpin, the story is, you know, his, his mare, Black Bess, was able to elude the law because he fed her meat and she could outrace the other horses. And, you know, the old West story of um, the guy who escaped the Apaches on the meat-eating horse, you know, what happens when we eat meat? You know, uh, we, you know, we get strong, we get a burst of energy. And so there are cultural applications here and probably practical applications as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What I thought was interesting, too, though, in the book, um, because, you know, as I said, I finished the book. One of my first thoughts was, like, why isn't anyone doing a study on this? And, you know, my second thought was if I had a horse, I would go feed him meat right now. But you sort of advise in the book that that's not, you know, that people maybe shouldn't do that because we don't know exactly, you know, that might lead to the murderous horse behavior. What I suspect is that we're talking about two different things. Mm -hmm. For example, there are six known episodes now in recent history, I mean, in the, in, in, the, in the beginning of this century, where equines have either torn out human throats or attempted to tear them out and, and, and thereby killed the human. And um, we don't know in each example what triggered this in this particular horse. Uh, the original case was in Australia. The little boy was picked up and killed. Then there was a case in um, Holland where a woman's um, throat was ripped out. There was an American who went off to Egypt, some kind of horse whisperer, and he narrowly escaped being killed when a horse tried to tear his throat out. There was another episode in India where the guy didn't have his throat torn out, but he was almost killed. And uh, then, of course, there's been the last one now in, uh, in Oklahoma where the kid was just absolutely torn to bits. Um, so we've got equines that are doing these savage acts. And then, of course, the other threat is they can also eat meat. But does, does feeding a horse prompt this murderous action? And, and we only have one example so far of a horse that does both. So there may be no link at all. It may just demonstrate that horses are much more psychologically and um, uh, complex, and they have a more complex diet than we've understood, but we're not sure yet if, you know, if they have a link between the two of them. Right, right. That's the sort of uh, $64,000 question. So why do you, I guess just do you err on the side of caution then and tell people not to feed their horses meat? Because also you point out sort of this whole mad cow thing where they think a mad cow might have been from feeding cows, you know, parts of other cows and stuff, which it said, well, sounds we, like they, they, they now know that that's, that's what happened. I okay. Mean, a cow has a different digestive system than a, than a horse. Mm -hmm. a, whore, a cow has four stomachs, 
And a horse has a single stomach like a, like a human. And a horse has a jaw that can move back and forth and up and down like a human. It has teeth like humans. And so a horse can eat grass or grain or meat like a human. And, and cows and camels don't do, they don't eat and digest like that. Uh, and so what I, at the end of the book, uh, I, I warn people, I said, you know, before you run out and feed your horse, you know, a couple of steaks thinking it's going to, um, to, to make him faster, you better be careful because we don't know what we're tampering with. And you have to understand, I, I think it's important to your listeners that uh, this isn't a new idea because in the book it explains that at the first Greek Olympics, uh, soon after chariot racing was introduced, um, one team owner was very upset that his team had lost. And so he didn't exactly cheat, but what he did was he fed his horses meat so that they would have an advantage over the other horses. So this is an old idea. And all you have to do is look at the, the modern equestrian world to see how much money is involved and see how much competition and nationalism and pride is involved before somebody goes, wait a minute, if I give old Trigger a couple of pounds of hamburger – you know, maybe he's going to do better in the Preakness or something. So you can see how people might want to cut a corner here. Right, right. Well, that actually that raises sort of something that I thought when I was reading the book is maybe is it possible here that you've stumbled across you know maybe some kind of well kept secret of the equestrian community in the, of the modern equestrian community where it's like you know if you got a chance to get to the bar with some of these guys that train the horses that are in the Kentucky Derby, they'd be like, yeah, of course we feed them meat. You know, that's why do you think they're in the Kentucky Derby? That why do you think they're the best of the best? Because we know the secret, which is to feed the meat. Is it possible that could be going on as well? No, I don't think so. And I had a very interesting email in from a, a Canadian equestrian journalist, and she said, um, you know, people now test drugs, uh, test horses for drugs mm-hmm. before and after races. Um, but does this raise the possibility that you might be able to give a horse a giant boost? Of some sort, we don't we can't even determine yet how and if it could happen. But you know, is there any testing if they eat meat? And and what's this going to do in terms of a possibility? You know, what could happen here? You know, if the French are feeding their horses meat flour right now, and we know that over in Orient in, the, in some of the Oriental countries in the in Central Asia, they're still feeding their horses meat. Uh, so, how long before you know a big feed company says, "Uh huh"? Well, let's see. As long as you stay away from the mad cow idea, which is you know cows eating cows, right? That, so you don't feed them horses. There. Yeah, this is different. I mean, uh, can you can and and this gets back to the cultural interpretation. You know, if you can, if Shackleton can feed his horses meat in, in Antarctica. Well, then what's different about feeding old Dobbin something that's got some meat in it because it gives you more energy? I mean, they've got all these different kinds of feed for horses now. Oh, adult horses, senior horses, horses that are left-handed. You know, they have something they need, and so we've got a special feed for them. I mean, you know, the the, the animal food industry uh, is is incredible and very wealthy. So maybe someone's going to come along and explore this idea from a commercial point of view. And if they do, how are they going to overcome the prejudice? You're going to have to give people copies of your book. <laughs> is there really is there really horse food for left-handed horses? Is that just a joke? That was just a joke. Okay. Well, that's just, you know. <laughs> that's an example of how extreme it can get. That's right. All right. Well, I didn't yeah, I believed you. So that's <laughs> that's how that's how in the dark I am to all this.
Is there something about that horse, Buster? You know, it's like we looked at each other, and then there was eye contact, and I was looking at the horse, and the horse was looking at me, and then it hit me. I think, maybe, I was a centaur in my past life. Well, something tells me you probably would never have man, half horse, but hell, what do I know? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Dude, I think it was a centaur okay. in my past life. I, I, it totally occurred to me. What makes you think you were half man, half horse? Charlie. Come on, out, out. He's working. Enjoy the roll. He's working. Bro, will you please get out of here? You smell like cheese. No, no. You right, do smell like... It's horse... Well, whatever it is, it's terrible, okay? So... Well, let's go on what it is. It's horse... But there's all these different industries at work here in this conversation, which is exciting and interesting, too, because you're talking about the equestrian industry. We're talking about the scientific establishment. And you, you know, you raise the point, though, why isn't maybe this is going on somewhere in some lab of a, of a food company right now where they, they have read your book and they are at work on this sort of thing. You never know. I mean, like I said, my first inclination after reading the book was if I was racing horses, you know, Feeding the meat would be like one of the first things I did. But, I mean, have you well, talked someone, to... Somewhat, let me, let me jump in and say that you're absolutely right. Someone literally did that. I, I was shocked. I was shocked because I, at the end of the book, I mean, this is... When I finished the book, look, the book is written as a, as a cautionary tale. It says, uh, hello, I think we better stop and go back and re-examine equestrian history. Look at all the evidence that's available right here in front of us. Here, here it is. It's in movies. It's in books, it's in newspapers, it's everywhere. Uh, all you have to do is look at it to see it. Now, maybe we ought to be a little more um, careful about how we view and define horses. You know, what's happened since then has been that there's more evidence pouring in. So what's going to happen next? I, I really can't. I can't even prophesize about what's going to happen. I, I can't see what's going to come down out of this. It's very strange. Now, at what point, you point out in the book, really, that you know, as we said, the, the the idea of feeding meat to horses is is referenced in the British uh, War Manual. So, I mean, like, it, can you trace any any specific sort of point where this whole idea sort of fell out of out of the the collective knowledge of the human race? Uh, you know, was this yeah. something that came yeah, with I, the Industrial Revolution? It's it's it's, it's 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 collective equestrian amnesia because and I and I and I explain this and and this isn't just about diet and this is about equestrian travel for example I mean I'm working on um I, I originally it was called the horse travel handbook now it's called the encyclopedia of equestrian exploration because I'm up to 500 pages I'm only half done because it's taken you know several decades to collect all of or as much of mankind's equestrian travel wisdom together. And and you know and to, and to work to preserve it and make it readable and to promote it into the next generation and beyond for posterity, because horses have been you know sort of marginal and have been sort of they've been marginalized, and and their history and how you deal with them has been largely lost, uh, and so that's what this is just a just is, this is just one example of that, you know and what do you feed horses, uh, and and what can they eat um, when when in the horse travel handbook that I'm working on, I mean, the things that horses eat are just, just off the scale. And on top of that, since this book came out, people have sent me, I mean, it looks, it reads like a cookbook. <laughs> you know, one lady just wrote me uh, from America and said, every time I have lunch, my horse has some. He may not like it, but he always has some. So, I mean, they eat horse, they eat pizzas, they eat hot dogs, they eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. One lady from America wrote and said, my horse eats barbecued, uh, barbecued goat, bones and all. And you think, wait a minute, horses chomping up bones? I mean, this is just, I'm not ready for that. 
uh, and yet they're so obviously so much more diverse than we um, have been led to believe. Yeah, and, and to go back to sort of the, the cause and effect idea, we see you're, if you're hearing so many stories from people who have these personal tales of feeding horses meat, it would stand a reason then maybe that the aggression actually doesn't necessarily come from having meat as part of the diet because we'd be seeing horse attacks all the time if, if, if you know, to coincide with all these people that are talking about feeding their horses meat. You know, what we have to understand, I think, is we, I, I think we have to look at the entrenched beliefs that we all have. I mean, you know, we're, we, we're born at a certain time period in a certain nation. We have a tendency to have cultural and religious and political views, and most people don't like to change their views. They, they're, they're pretty dogmatic, um, and so it takes a lot to shift somebody uh, to say, well, maybe, or yes. You know, you don't, you don't very often meet people who just make a, a, a large philosophical, religious, political shift in their life. Most people look for evidence to reinforce what they already believe. And horses are the same thing. They're not any, uh, any different. Um, so, you know, I think that's what we have to keep in mind, that most people are pretty dogmatic. Uh, and I, I actually, I've been very uh, fortunate and very um, surprised that so many people have been so supportive. Yeah, well, like you said about the guy who came and visited your wife and, and who, who didn't speak English, and you say, you know, like, so what? It seems like almost that's part of the reaction you're getting, too. It's like you, that, you know, it comes off as revelatory at first, but then to the people who know horses, to that small group of people who still, you know, spend parts of their day with horses, this really isn't something that shocking, which is which in and of itself becomes shocking. I had an email that came in yesterday from an American woman, and she said, I hate people who think that horses are um, like babies, that they're these big, innocent creatures. She said, I recently had to dive under a tractor to escape from a horse. She said, if they knew horses like I do, they wouldn't think like that. Scary. Scary. Now, you say they do more than bite and kick, though, but what, like what, you know, with the risk well, of getting too uh, gruesome, know, I mean... How, in, in, how do they the attack? Book, what it, um, there are there's examples of um, historically what they do is they will grab you by they'll either tear out your throat or they'll grab you by the shoulder they'll shake you violently they will throw you in the air and then they will pin you with their front legs and they will disembowel you. Oh, Jesus! It's pretty, um, it's pretty effective. <laughs> Now, this this just came to me here. I'm, I'm loving this conversation, by the way, Colin, so just bear with me. But this raises an interesting thing that just popped into my head having this conversation with you. What is – we're talking about horses here, but you point out in the book that the zebra is essentially a horse, as, as many people can assume, you know, a zebra, with probably some slight differences. But what's the zoological – uh, thoughts on the zebra. Is it the same as the horse, that it's just a, just an herbivore, that it's just a creature of prey, or, or is the zebra sort of looked at in a different sense? No, the, the zebra is, um, is definitely an equine. You know, it definitely is. And we know that they, um, that they kick and that they can fight off predators. There's actually a very interesting photograph of a, of a zebra throwing a, a you know, kicking a, a, a lion savagely. You can see it quite easily. Um, and so uh, this gets back to horses are so capable of defending themselves. Um, there's several examples in the book of um, how horses um, are able to fight off wolf packs. Uh, you know, we have um, 
that, that's another mythical animal is the wolf. Uh, the, the Russians, for example, have a vastly different way of viewing the, um, the wolf than the Americans. Um, you may not know this, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. Um, because of the prevalent use of firearms in the United States and Canada, wolves have been, I, I, I guess it's fair to say that over generations of interactions with men, either they've been driven to the edge of extinction or they've learned to be very wary of, men, of mankind. You know, mankind has guns, you've got to stay away from them. And so you don't have a lot of cases where wolves uh, attack kill and consume human beings. Uh, in fact, it's considered largely mythological. But over in Russia and in parts of Central Asia, the wolf is still considered an absolutely lethal animal. And of course, this affects equestrian explorers because when you're riding across Mongolia at night alone, which long riders now do, uh, and wolves come out and try to eat you, then that's kind of a personal concern. Yeah. And so there has been a release, a flood of information that was released after the fall of the Soviet Union about how wolves in Russia basically never changed from the original wild state. And there were designated Soviet wolf hunters that kept the wolves at bay. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that system disappeared. And what you then had was a, a rise, a dramatic rise in the wolf population with a corresponding rise in human deaths. You know, mom would go off to the to the village well and not come back. You would send little Susie to school and they'd find her books, but she wasn't there. And so wolves had uh, grown both in Russia and had migrated south into Kazakhstan and also over in Mongolia. And so wolves can be a really bad, threatening animal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the, the American, especially the American concept of wolves, can be, can be inaccurate. And this ties back into the book, and it ties back into horses, because the prevalent view is that horses are terrified of wolves. They're terrified of any predator, and that upon the sight of a predator, they'll kick up their heels and run away, because, you know, they're afraid of that. And in fact... Our ancestors knew that um, horses would see wolves, they would go into a circle, the horses would, and that they would uh, savage the wolves and pound them into pulp. And this just completely goes against the current grain of thinking that horses are these mild meat herbivores who aren't capable of defending themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, just to, just to jump back, I guess you could say, to the, to the zebra part. So the zebras are essentially grouped in with horses so that the, the people don't assume that they eat meat or any of the or they're aggressive right like uh like we've established here with horses obviously it would apply to zebras too but i'm just sort of wondering you know like you you think about the zebra on the on the the, the you know the plains of the of the serengeti or whatever and it's like you would think that it would be sort of predatory just to exist there but i guess the scientific community assumes that they're just creatures of prey as well right that's right i think what if, if we want to look at africa i think what's really interesting is to look at the, the quagga. Now, the quagga is, it's, it's an animal, it's an equine that's now extinct. Mm -hmm. Okay, it went extinct at the end of the 19th century. And it looks like a mixture of a horse and a zebra. Okay, it's big like a horse. It's got stripes across the back part of its body. But what's really interesting about that, I think you probably may remember this from the book, is that the quagga is so, was so ferociously hostile to predators that the, that the farmers would use the quagga to kill hyenas and protect their herds. Yeah. 
So, I mean, you know, it, when you think about um, the, the modern definition of horses being afraid of predators, you can't put that, you can't reconcile that with the quagga who would race out there and grab hyenas and kill them. And, you know, there's, there's images of a quagga killing a hyena, and there's a corresponding image of a, of a horse that's lost its rider in India, and he's also, without, without any kind of um, provocation, that horse is trying to kill the hyena by himself. Unbelievable. It's wild stuff. It, it really is. It's, it's just... Well, I think it's unbelievable for a lot of people today, but it wasn't unbelievable for our great-grandfathers. Right, exactly. Well, that raises a whole issue that sort of is a, is a sort of short theme in the book, too, and that's just that, you know, and you, you point this out just now with the wolf story, and that's just that the human race is getting so, you know, disjointed from nature and from the animal kingdom, it's not even funny, and it's getting worse and worse every year, and as you point out, you know, by the time we get to, like, 2045, the, the computers will be smarter than the humans, and it's like, you wonder what kind of world we're living in, you know, to take it, to pull the camera for even further back beyond just the horses and the wolves and everything else, it's like... What, what has mankind become at this point? We, we've completely become disjointed from our roots. And There's have, a new have study, uh, and I, I can't quote the author, but the new study says that um, um, one of the reasons that mankind has developed language is because of our need to discuss animals and to interact with animals. Hmm. Uh, and I, I can't comment on the validity of that study. Um, but our links, our, our tribal species links with animals has always been a tremendous concern to us. Uh, and now, with the majority of, of humanity living in cities, and the only companion animals we have being largely, you know, cats and dogs and mice and birds and small fish, um, what we collectively knew as a species is, it's in peril. Uh, and imagine, again, again, going back, imagine what your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents knew about a lot of things. Survival skills and animals and things that we no longer need. And as a species, I think that this brings up a question is, you know, if, if the electricity does go off or the trucks do stop running, what are you going to do? You're going to be stuck someplace in an urban environment. And let's say, you know, your family lives in California and you live in New York. How do you get there? And even if there is a horse, how do you get on it? And how do you travel? And what do you feed it? This kind of stuff. So there's a lot of implications here. But so long as we're focused on Facebook and a sports team and we don't think about these things, then we put our belief in a system, in a political and uh, energized system that says that, no, nah, don't worry about it. You know, I think that's called the matrix, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's scary stuff. Like I said, when you pull the camera further back, you know, we're we're becoming, you know, we have information at our fingertips, but we're, in a way we're becoming helpless. We're really becoming a helpless race of people uh, who, who have to rely on technology for everything. It's scary. Yeah, I, I think, you know, because we mentor so many um, equestrian travelers, and you have to understand when, you know, I'll give you a good example. Um, a few years back, we were contacted by a young Australian. Uh, he said, uh, I'm afraid of horses. Right away, I'm going to tell you, right, straight away. When I was five years old, I got thrown off a horse, broke my arm, never been around them, don't like them, but I'd like to ride 6,000 miles alone from Mongolia to Hungary. In the footsteps of Genghis Khan, can you help me? We said, yeah, we can help you. And he overcame his fear of horses, but teaching him how to do that was pretty complex, i got to tell you. You know, you can't just go off to Mongolia, buy a couple horses. You have to, there's a lot of skill involved. And, and what we're talking about is the demise of that skill. And it's, it, it's the loss of a kind of specialized knowledge. You know, how do you make a saddle? How do you put a bridle on? What do you feed your horse? You know, how do you cross a stream from right to left? 
You know, these these are the kind of things that the Long Riders Guild is committed to trying to find and preserve and uh, and to share. Um, and meanwhile, most of the horse world is out there going, come on, let's ride in circles like goldfish in a bowl. Yeah, exactly. It's troubling, too, that that you, you raised uh, an interesting point in the book that the rise of automobiles, we kind of talked about this earlier, but it's worth mentioning here. Um, and uh, it's, it's just this this widespread, as you call it, uh, equinocide. You know, I mean, this is something that probably nobody really thinks about or knows about, but if there were 21 million horses in America in 1918, um, you know, they didn't all die of old age, folks. Like, people got cars and, and bad things happened to this, this massive horse population that is completely swept under the rug and never talked about. I'll tell you something interesting, and I was really shocked by this. And um, I think I, I think this might be of interest to your to your listeners because it's um, there's so many people listening to your, your audience in our America. The first war on terror, or the first terrorism war uh, that I know of, I, I recently came across the evidence was was in America, and it happened in the, the mid 1920s, and it was connected to horses. It had nothing to do with politics. What happened was that at the um, the end of the First World War, an Englishman uh, who had become a naturalized American citizen uh, invented horse. Uh, he invented canned dog food, and it was called kennel ration. And um, he uh, used uh, horse meat to feed horse to, to feed dogs. And this was a brand new concept. And so, by the early 1920s, America had drifted away from. Um, horses in a daily occurrence. They were already addicted to the automobile. And so the the need for horses wasn't there any longer. And there was millions of horses, unwanted horses, no longer needed. And so this Englishman quickly cottoned on to the fact that there was money to be made. And Americans were already in love with the convenience factor. So what they did was they quickly became hooked on this idea of feeding their dogs uh, horse meat out of cans. And this Englishman went on and first he decimated the entire equine population on the East Coast. Then he moved to Chicago and he sucked up all the horses in Chicago and the Midwest. Then he started an empire in the, in the, in the American West. This guy had a ranch bigger than the state of Delaware. Wow. And he was, what he did was he, he shipped out giant, draft horse stallions and let them loose on the range. They would mate with the Mustangs and produce bigger meat-producing horses. And this is all completely legal. But what he did was he, he killed so much of the American equine population that um, the horses were just, they were just, it was unbelievable. Just unbelievable how many horses were being shipped in cattle cars back to, um, to the plant in Rockford, Illinois. And one man, a little guy named Frank Litz, started a one-man war against kennel ration and uh, bombed the plant, burned it, and ended up dying in prison over this. And uh, it gets back to all of this history, all of this part of American history and equestrian history has been uh, just washed under the carpet, not even known about it anymore. Just this conversation alone, there's like five great movie ideas here in, in this in this conversation. It's just stunning how in the dark people are about horses and, and just how completely – wrong their perspectives are on this creature like i said uh, if i if i'm like the every man of the audience this is stunning stuff to me across the board so I, I have to say something in the book you may remember this but in the book i prophesize that the idea that horses are 
um, capable of such extreme aggression, and they, ca they are capable of rendering human beings apart. I mean, you have to understand, one of the early examples is uh, in Africa where a warring African tribe was known to feed the children of their captives to their horses. I mean, that's a pretty gruesome example, but it's true. And once you grasp the idea that horses are capable of eating human flesh and can fit these unbelievable uh, violent acts against humans, there's a whole that just throws open a door to all these possibilities. What if you're a lawyer? What if you're a neighbor? What if you're a, 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 a what if you're a parent? What if you're an author? And what if you're a filmmaker? Now, if I was Oliver Stone and I was making a story about Alexander the Great, I'd have to really ask myself, do I want to show Bucephalus eating Persians? Because in theory, that's probably what happened. And so the implications here are really, really wide. Yeah, like you said, you point out in the book and just now, I mean, it goes across the board. There's a lot of areas that this that these revelations should touch upon. And, you know, it seems – how long has the book been out? Only a few months, right? Oh, it's only been out a month. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So yeah. it's only been out a month. I mean, and in, in, this, in this month, you've received countless <laughs> uh, correspondences from people who back up what you're saying. So Yeah, well, actually, the book was delayed. Um, some people made fun of the book because the, uh, the publication date was April the 1st. And, you know, living in Europe, I just kind of like don't pay attention to Halloween and April Fool's and all that stuff. So um, I said, oh, yeah, but actually there was a mistake because it was um, a coincidental date. And on top of that, the book was delayed at the last minute because that vital evidence came flooding in. And we had to stop the book. And I had to rewrite the book because at the last minute, the Lord Chamberlain of Bhutan contacted the Long Range Guild and said um, that the king of Bhutan's horses ate uh, meat and tiger's fat. And we were um, told about the uh, the German film, the 1938 German film, which filmed horses eating the blood in Tibet. And then we got confirmation from a, uh, a Tibetan expert that the Tibetan horses only stopped eating meat when the Cultural Revolution hit Tibet in the 1970s. And then at the very last instant, we were notified by Britain's leading camel explorer, John Hare, that not only did the Cossacks escape on meat-eating horses in India, but that the survivors had just offered to sell him some meat-eating horses. I mean, at that point, I'd say, wait a minute, we've got to stop the book right now. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the, the, the evidence is just, you know, it's just coming in now. I mean, you know, I just, I've got a big file called Evidence, and I've had to actually break it up into meat-eating, murderous, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's fascinating, and I think you're just going to keep getting more emails from people, you know. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't heard stories, and maybe you have, of like, you know, horses attacking family pets, that kind of stuff. I mean, anything's possible, right? i tell you something. Uh, you know, what's happening is people are speculating now. You have to understand, the, the horse world, the horse has, you know, this is an animal that has affected humanity more than anything. I mean, more than the dog. I mean, I love dogs, okay? But, you know, forget the cat, forget the fish, forget the cow, forget the sheep. I mean, these are all animals that are good for us and we use them, but, but the horse... You know, you go back and you look at literature and you look at history. It's the horse. There's the horse. And, and the horse turned mankind into this incredible, deadly, mounted predator. I mean, mm -hmm. mankind. You know, when you take the horse's speed and you match that with the human's uh, vision and his ability to shoot a bow and arrow, boy, that's a really lethal team. Yeah. And so – when when you come up with this kind of combination and then you go out and look at history, I mean, this is an incredible, incredible thing. 
Yeah. The book is like a reawakening in a way, too, just uh, to, to make me and hopefully the listeners and the readers, uh, you know, remember how important the horse was to the human race because it's been so marginalized now. It's just it's just stunning when well, you really I think, think it's about a cartoon, it. don't you? Yeah, it's My Little Pony. It's it's exactly you it's know. My Little Pony, and uh, I, I was I got you know I I, I want to say this in a really careful way. Um, the Long Riders Guild is um, is not part of the traditional equestrian world. I mean, equestrian explorers. You know, they're a really solitary group. You know, there's there's only, you know, there's a handful of them. They're in all these countries, but there's not a lot of them. And they're, uh, we have a rule, for example. I'll tell you something. Um, the first time we ever go to meet a long rider in whatever country, we always meet them alone because they burn so bright. You know, you walk into a room, you go, whoa, this is a serious person. Okay. I mean, you don't get on a horse and ride 5,000 miles through a jungle and not come out of it affected. And so these are really, interesting and intriguing and intense people and and their experiences with horses are very singular but most people are um involved with equestrian activities which is about collective uh, approval and uh, community um awards and this kind of stuff and 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 the equestrian explorers aren't like that and and i think that that's that's a really important reason that this has come out via the Long Riders Guild because we don't have uh, preconceived notions about horses. You know, horses are practical, so are we. If they want to eat a bird, well, fine, just leave us some, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It actually it makes you wonder, too, if, like, uh, this long riding, it, I wonder if it was actually easier back in the day than it would be now because now you kind of have to sort of navigate either through or around, you know, civilization, which isn't, you know, which actually may be more harsher than than you'd expect to to bring up. You know, you, you, let's say you're going from like one part of India to the other or something. You got to go through Mumbai. What are you gonna do with your horse? It's like you got. What's, it what's that like? I mean, it, it, the thing about equestrian journeys is that it's it's as a, it's as as diverse as the planet. And we have an Indian guy who's getting ready to make the first modern journey from the top of India to the bottom, and he's trying to come up with a route that avoids all the major uh, urban centers. Um, because, you know, for, for nothing else, I mean, who wants to ride a horse through traffic? Right. You know, it's just horrible. And right. it's not good for the horse, uh, and stuff. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a real, that's a real problem. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you want to cross Africa? We, um, have two, um, long riders. They started out from Tunisia, and they have now reached Uganda. And under the reign of Idi Amin, horses uh, largely disappeared in that country. And people keep walking up and asking these two young people, you know, what kind of cow is this? <laughs> They've never seen a horse. <laughs> you know, and that's not the only time that's happened. Uh, we've had other examples of people who, you know, places where horses are not known, you know. Uh, and so this this is a really strange and exciting part of the horse world that most people don't know about. Uh, and yet, like I said, you know, it started with five people and now it's in 44 countries. And it's academic. It's not commercial. So, you know, you learn about it. Uh, for example, this morning I got an email from a young woman. She said, I just rode from Spain to Scotland and I just discovered the Long Range Guild. Wow, this is incredible. I didn't know there was other people like me. And, you know, there are. That's, that's the interesting and exciting thing about it. Now, how fast... Like, how long does it take, would you say, to travel, let's say, like a 1,000 miles if you're going to do a long ride on a horse? It depends on the uh, topography and the climate and the political situation. It really depends. I mean, if you're going to travel, you know, for example, if you want to ride ocean to ocean across the United States, 
Um, you can go 3,000 miles in four months, probably. Uh, if you want to go across Africa, uh, we recently had a, a German couple that went from South Africa to Kenya, and it took them five months, and they almost oh, wow. died. Uh, at one point, they were surrounded by a mob of a thousand people who stoned them. What? Uh, so, you know, it kind of depends on what you run into, uh, and it depends on where you are. Interesting, yeah. So there's also, yeah, I was thinking about that, actually. Yeah, there's probably a lot of, like, sort of cultural obstacles you run into while you're on one of these trips, right? Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan is tricky right now. Yeah. Uh, we had a Frenchman and uh, an Afghan, and they rode through... Um, they went through the center of Afghanistan, and they stopped in Herat. They didn't stop in Herat because the Taliban killed them, which was interesting, but because he got some sort of uh, terrible um, – and having lived out there, this is so believable. Um, he ate or drank something, and some huge growth started growing on his liver. Jesus. Yeah, he was in excruciating pain, and he got to Herat, bent over double, and the guy said, you've got something we never saw before. we got to get your ass out of here. And they flew him to France and nuked it or did something. Um, so it, it kind of depends on where you are. You can write anywhere. Right now, you can write anywhere except Antarctica because uh, governments got together and for, they have forbidden any animals in Antarctica, which is really too bad because I think otherwise horses could have reached the South Pole. Yeah, that's pretty weird. I don't know why they would – that seems kind of ridiculous, uh, but I don't know what to make of that. Even dogs? Yeah. Yeah, I understand that you can't take uh, outside animals. And I think this is something else you touched on briefly about the idea that um, horses were in Antarctica and how surprising that was. But um, there, um, if the equestrian, if the traditional modern equestrian world has a lot of uh, preconceived notions and prejudices, so does the polar community. And there's been a, a, a deafening silence largely from the from the polar community because it's always been very fashionable to uh, to mock horses. They say, oh, my God, horses in Antarctica. Oh, it's simply ridiculous. Oh, you know, they fall in the snow. And once you leave the coast, there's nothing to eat. You have to bring all the food along. And um, what we discovered was that, that this is inaccurate. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Scandinavian and Norwegian cultures have something called the Hestitruger, which is a special kind of equine snowshoe, and you can get horses that can walk across the top of the snow. In fact, they're so capable, they pull sleighs with on logs on top of them. So the idea of horses pulling sleighs across the snows of Antarctica is quite easy. And then on top of that, if you feed the horses meat, suddenly the horse is a much more effective animal than the dog because a, a horse can pull a sleigh weighing 1,200 pounds, and if you can feed the horse meat just like you can the dog, then suddenly the whole equation is open for reinvestigation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you make that point, too, in, in the book, uh, just based on some of the diaries of the explorers in the Arctic and everything. I mean, across the board, they were saying that they sort of reacted with surprise that that the horses were much more valuable as, a, as an animal to use than the, the dogs, which I thought was you know, you know, it, just makes it even more strengthens the whole thing. I, I have to say, you know, when when you – you know, you, you grow up with a set of beliefs. You know, George Washington shot down the cherry tree. Benjamin Franklin signed the Declaration of Independence. Babe Ruth hit the most home runs. Kind of so you kind of know the parameters of your universe. And, uh, you, you know, I, I grew up in an American a cowboy culture. You know, I went to an English writing school, and then I uh, left England and went to Afghanistan, and that's where my equestrian exploration career break began. And, and, and throughout my own personal career, and, and, and journey in the horse world, you know, I, I kind of had 
points where I could reference. And yet, as I started really seriously investigating question history, I realized, boy, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff we have either lost or forgotten. And, and one of the examples of this, and to me it was really startling, was the discovery that former U.S. cavalrymen, Indian fighters, had ridden horses in the, in the Arctic Circle. I mean, that just blew me away. I couldn't believe it. And there's photographs of them exercising the horses on the ice in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> it's just unbelievable stuff. I mean, I, just like I said, kudos to you for introducing a lot, reintroducing a lot of this information to people. It's just, I just wish that it would get more traction. I hope, you know, the book's only been out a month. I feel like this is, like you said, it's not going to go away. I feel like you're, you're sort of starting this revolution of thinking with regards to horses that I hope can continue onward. I appreciate that, and I think what's been so encouraging personally is that um, the, the vast majority of people have been so polite and kind and objective and interested, and they're saying, well, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. this is sensational. Well, wait a minute, maybe it's not. And when they look at the evidence, uh, you know, you can, you can go on the, on the Deadly Equines page on Facebook, or you can go to the, uh, the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation where we have everything publicly available. Or you can send me an email. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I pull my pants on one leg at a time. You know, I'm nobody special. And you can ask me any question, and I'll send you the answer if I have it, or at least discuss it with you. And like I said, I'm not dogmatic. I don't care. I don't have an agenda here. And the fact is that people have been so willing to discuss this has been really encouraging. Now, you said you did get some some backlash from a horse whisperer in Australia or something like that. You were telling me about this before we got on yeah, the air. Yeah, there was uh... – there was um, a comment posted, and uh, the guy had never read the book, and, and, and you know this might appeal to your listeners, but he said, oh, you know, there's no more evidence of this than there are UFOs. And I thought, well, you're really opening yourself up for a couple of pot shots here, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the book explains, um, the horse whispering, the idea of, of, of this thing that we now know in, in, in the common uh, field is, is horse whispering. That's nothing new. I mean, uh, the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation has done a seven-year study of this, and uh, the, the the whole idea that you train horses a certain way in a round enclosure uh, that that was originated uh, by an American named John Rary in the mid 19th century. There's a lot of fraud involved in this. There's a lot of violence involved in this, and so there. This is a really questionable. Uh, um, part of the question world anyway. And, it, and the thing about it is it's questionable, but no one ever questions it because now it's been accepted as just de facto. This is the way things are. This is a, this is a practice without any sort of drawbacks, and that's not true. Um, and these people have a vested economic interest in telling the public, A, horses are herbivores, B, people are predators, C, horses are afraid of humans. And as the evidence clearly indicates in the book, that's not true. Uh, you know, if you think that horses are afraid of humans, I defy you to go into a ring with Lisette and not get disemboweled, you know. Right, right, so, yeah. Uh, Hor humans should be afraid of horses. That's the that's the takeaway from all oh, this. You, you're the one who said it, Tim. I didn't. You're the one who said, you know, it kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And it's like the book says in that um, in the movie with Steve McQueen where there is a meat-eating horse in the movie. You know, he says, you know, sometimes you've got to say goodbye to the things you know and embrace the things you don't. And, uh, and I think this is what's so, um, what's so important about this discussion that we're having right now is that we are discussing, we're talking about things. And, and that's what this book has done. This book has sparked an investigation among other people. People are saying, hey, I got this bit of evidence. Oh, I saw this. 
and and they're they're now discussing things and they're they're contemplating things. The questions it's not just evidence that are coming in; it's questions that are coming in. People are writing and saying, oh, "Wait a minute, uh, there's a prevalence of colic in horses, right?" Well, yeah, okay. Well, do you think it's because they only have a grass-fed diet? Do you think if they had more meat in their diet, maybe they wouldn't get colic? Because what happens is that when a horse eats too much vegetable matter, okay, and it, it gets impacted into their intestines, they can kill them. But protein with fat in it passes through the intestines quickly. Now, I didn't make that up. Another horse person wrote me and said, do you think that's possible? I said, I don't know yet, you see. And so there's questions now being asked that, you know, eight weeks ago, weren't even being considered on the radar. Uh, another person wrote and said, do you think horse whispers are, are the reason that we have horses that are prey animals? Do you think that maybe they're learning something from humans that we don't know about, some sort of emotional link that we haven't detected? And I said, you know, again, I don't know. Now, what, uh, is, this, what is this horse whispering? Is this like a form of training horses? Yeah, it's called natural horsemanship. It's called uh, – um, there was a movie – Starring Robert Redford. Right, the horse whisperer, right? Horse whisperer, yeah. That's kind of when it all what sort it is, of became is, so you know, big. You get right? a horse in a small enclosure, and you you try to, um, to teach this horse to, to obey you. And, and there's different ways, and there's different manners. But it is not, it's nothing new. Uh, it's been around a long time. And there's different practices, and there's some questionable um, uh, things involved. It's an interesting thing, too, because there's a lot of... Um, Cultism, if you want to look at this, this is a, a shocking concept for people who are involved in this when you, when you use the word like a cult. But, uh, you get gurus, you get followers, you get a system of authority. Uh, there's a lot of money involved, tons of money involved. Uh, yeah. Clinics and products and endorsements and magazines. And on top of that, some of the most prevalent or one of the most prevalent American horse whispers is notorious, notoriously litigious. Uh, he was investigated in 1998, and uh, a big article came out um, basically defrocking him, and he threatened the magazine with a gigantic multi-million dollar lawsuit, and they backed down, and since then, no one has ever done a serious investigation of the entire phenomenon. So uh, this little book is um, is one of the first things that come along to say, you know, I think that this needs a serious investigation on a different angle. Right, right. Well, it's weird, too. It's it's unfortunate in a sense because it sounds like, you know, we've uh, – uh, yeah, I'm probably misusing the bell curve here, but it's like, you know, we had this sort of peak of horses, then, as you say, you know, an intellectual equestrian vacuum, and then in, into this vacuum steps people to take advantage of, of that vacuum in a way that is probably nefarious in a lot of ways. Well, I, I'm going to – I'll put this in – I'll put this in automotive terms, mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, people can relate to that. When you meet a long rider, a long rider will say, "Do you have a horse?" No. Okay, get a horse because here's why: a horse is a good. Horses are good for human beings. Okay, they're good for you physically. They're good for you emotionally. They're good for you spiritually. You get on a horse. You go on a journey. You change. Okay, you can be, you become healthier, happier. It's you know, it's I'm not. It's not a religion. It's not a lifestyle. It's just it's good for you. Okay, and that's a different thing between. A horse whisperer, because a horse whisperer is like a mechanic that you get addicted to, okay? If you go to your mechanic, you go, look, I've got a 1978 Dodson truck, and uh, it, it shakes when I turn it on, and it rattles, and this and that, and you go, okay, and he, you take it to the mechanic, and he fixes it. You don't go back and worship the mechanic, okay? And so much of what the horse whisperer is about is about this allegiance to a leader figure, because people don't have a lot of 
everyday knowledge about horses because they don't know how to fix horses. They turn to somebody of authority who they think they can trust. And people and those positions, oftentimes, it doesn't matter if it's religion, politics, horses, people who are placed in positions of power oftentimes misuse that power. And that's what we see in horse whispering. Now, you said earlier that there's violence involved. Where, how is there violence? Is this like animal cruelty type violence? The round pen is an enclosure. Okay, look, let's, let's take horses and let's compare horses in what nature. Horse, nature devised horses to wander around a pool, a source of water. Okay, horses were originally a step animal, okay, out in the Central Asian steppes. All right, so they would, they would run in a herd. Okay, of, 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 of their own family, okay, and they would migrate around a, 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 a water source and they would eat and move and eat and move and sleep and eat and move. And they, they, they don't sleep very often and they usually sleep standing up. A horse hardly ever sleeps lying down. It's not like a cow. So they move and they're very alert, intelligent animals, okay? So horses are different than rats. Rats live in small, smelly, confined spaces. You find a rat in a, inside of a wall, and he lives on top of his urine and his feces and the refuse that he drags in there, and they breed in the dark, okay? Horses weren't designed to be living like rats, and yet what modern man does is modern man takes a horse off the plains, off the steps, out of that natural environment, puts it in a 12 by 12 stall, makes it stand on top of its feces and its urine, feeds it hay, doesn't know what else it can eat, but it gives it hay, and they, they change the natural environment that a horse is designed to. And what happens is that horses then get psychotic. They start biting wood. They start shaking their heads back and forth. I mean, they're like prisoners. They are. They're prisoners. And you get strange mental um, actions from this. And when horses start acting up, people start looking for answers. Oh, you know, Buffy won't go into the horse trader trailer. Or, you know, um, you know, I want to get on, you know, uh, my horse and, you know, he doesn't want to do this or that. So they, they turn for answers to uh, people who they believe are experts. And um, sometimes the expert has the answer, sometimes it doesn't. But the, the, the system is involved in bringing you back to the expert. That's the thing. You, it's not like your Dotson truck. You don't get the truck fixed and go home and drive it. You're supposed to come back again and again and again. And that's, there's a system involved with that. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. You better watch out. You're going to have some horse whispers coming after you, man. Well, that, has, that was uh, what I thought would happen, and it's happened once. Like I said, a minor horse whisperer in Australia got a bit uh, upset about it. But, um, you know, you can't suppress the truth. And like I said, with so much evidence of omnivorous and uh, aggressive action now already available, you know, uh, they can yeah, – people can believe what they like. Right. You no, know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to change people's opinion. I, I don't mind. I, you know, they can believe whatever they want. Now, what about uh, – well, we're heading toward the close here, but uh, what about sort of animal rights groups? Have they picked up on this story at all or, or, or correspond with you in any way? No, and why would they? Uh, you know, it's interesting because um, as, as I was finishing the book, um, I came across some brand-new research. Um, about animal resistance to um, to um, being enclosed, to being abused. And I, I, I was really, you have to understand, my whole life's been about horses, you know. I mean, the, some of the most important fundamental things that have ever happened to me have involved horses. And 
when I began researching this and, and getting ready to put it on paper, I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was really upset. I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, I shared it with other horse people, and, and everyone was going, shaking their heads, going, oh, man, this is just, we don't even want to go there. And it wasn't until this new research came in towards the end of the project that I realized that this was not a Frankenstein-style story, that there is evidence that when you persecute animals, that they react. And there are... Um, uh, new studies, especially with orca whales and with dolphins, uh, there's a guy named Professor Jason Hrebel, I think his name is, and the book talks about this. And they now know that if you, if you can find these animals artificially, especially these orca whales, that they will kill uh, their, their, their handlers. There's been one orca whale, I think he's killed four human beings. And the... Um, the, the Sea World style operation that controls and owns this animal keeps repressing this information from the public. And so the, the book talks about um, how horses should be viewed the same way we view, um, you know, uh, elephants and circuses mm-hmm. or orcas and sea worlds. I mean, if it's, in, if it's unethical, if we have, I'm put it this way, if we have ethical questions about taking a giant whale and putting him in a, in a pen and making him jump through a loop or do some kind of animal act, then why hasn't the horse world posed the same question, for example, about the famous Lipizzan stallions of Austria? You know, what's natural about taking a white stallion and making him jump on his back legs like a bird? I don't think that's very natural. And so the book argues, actually, that we need to be more uh, humane to horses. And I think that that's a message that resonates with the, uh, the animal activist crowd. And I wouldn't see why they wouldn't. Right, right. That's kind of what I was asking. You'd figure that they would, that this would raise some eyebrows with the, with the animal, uh, as you say, animal activist crowd. In the sense that well, they I have to, let me just jump in and put this back into the perspective of the Long Riders Guild. The Long Riders Guild is the is is an invitation only organization. You don't just do the miles and get in. You have to be invited. And anybody who ever does anything ethically suspect to or with their horses is either excluded or thrown out. I mean, we even threw out one of the founding members when we found that he had crossed that line. And so there is no tolerance ever with any kind of equestrian abuse. I mean, the things, if you're not a horse person, you probably don't know about the kind of cruelty that is routine in all of the equestrian events, racing, uh, Tennessee walkers. I mean, the stuff that goes on behind the barn doors is so nauseating, I won't tell you about it. Uh, and the Long Runner Guild won't tolerate that. And I think that's why the uh, the animal rights people um, probably don't have a problem with this, with this issue. Yeah, yeah. If I put the miles in, will you invite me into the Long Riders? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You see, the thing about this is, listen, this is the great thing about the Long Riders Guild. It's just average people. Look, i got to say something. Just the other day, we got a – I'll send you a link. There's a fantastic YouTube thing that was just done about a week or ten days ago. There's a man from the state of Washington, and his name is Tom Fairbank. And this is just an average American guy, and he's 60-something years old. And um, he had a dream of riding his horse from his home in the state of Washington to his forefather's ranch in Montana, okay? And he said, this is on my bucket list, you know, the list of things you got to do before he died. Mm-hmm. And he, when, when he finished the trip, he made this little YouTube video about what it meant for him to ride across his own nation. And he had his own horse. Just this nice-looking Palomino average horse, and he had his riding animal, and he's had his pack animal, and you know he went off and he found his own dream and he made it happen. 
And, uh, you know, nothing special, but it was really personal and really important to him. And that's the thing about this whole issue is that, you know, if you want to ride from wherever you are to whatever goal on the map means something to you personally, well, then that's why we're here to help you. Where, where do you camp along the way in that sort of situation where you do these well, things? Well, it, like it all depends on, um, yeah, it could be America and, and, you know, there's a big difference between, like, America and the Middle East or something like that. But I just mean, you just camp sort of where, you know, when you get tired, when you get done riding for the day, you sort of just well, stop. Yeah, where okay, you stop. Yeah, remember, you got to remember, climate, topography, local conditions, uh, local populace. Right. Now, let's see, where are you located? Where, where am I talking to right now? I'm in Boston. Or just okay, so you're in Boston. Yeah. Now you just pick a spot on a map. Pick any spot in America. Just tell it. Pick a pick a spot in America that appeals to you. Let's say Chicago. Okay. You want to ride from Chicago from Boston to Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So here's what you have to do. You have to find yourself a good, solid, physically strong, emotionally secure horse that can carry you. Okay. Now if you're going to ride by yourself, you probably don't need a pack horse because you're going to go through America. Now what you do is you sit down and you make yourself a route that avoids as much traffic and major cities as possible, all right? You find as many small places to do as you can. Then you pre-arrange with as many people in, in, in advance. And I'm talking specifically the United States now. You find places where you can try to stay in advance, and you ask them if they can pass all that information. And using this new system, you can probably create a route from Boston to Chicago in about two weeks' time. So you already know where you're going to stay. Now, along the way, you might sleep in a little league field. You might sleep. Um, you might get the, the local police might say, "Okay, you can put your horse in that star, that field over there. You can sleep with us." I mean, there's all sorts of people that will take care of you. And because what you learn, and this is what this guy Tom Fairbank just said, he said what it did was it reaffirmed his belief in people, because the people in America were so kind to him. Here's a stranger, a 60 year old bus driver riding across America, and he said, you know, the door was always open because people are really kind, and when you show up on a horse, that's something really unusual, and they want to talk to you. And, of course, you've got the entire cowboy culture there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that, that kind of that, that kind of takes you almost on a mental picture of what it must be like, so that, that was exactly. good. It's relaxing. When you, listen, there's a big difference. When you travel inside of a steel cocoon going 70 miles an hour, you do not interact with nature. When you get on a horse and you travel at three miles an hour, you see every you see every pebble on the road, and those uh, Chicago is a long time coming, and you change getting there. I'll tell you. Interesting. All right, I'm going to keep this in mind. If I had the money and the time, I would be on a horse tomorrow doing this. But right. Well, when you want to leave the radio and get in the saddle, you call me. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, now, where can folks pick up Deadly Equines: The Shocking True Story of Meat Eating and Murderous it's Horses? Available on Amazon. Uh, no problem. You can get it on Amazon. There's no sweat there. And um, if you go to the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation, that's um, the academic and publishing arm of the guild. And the website there is uh, uh, www, obviously, and then it's lrgaf.org. Mm-hmm. And you can contact me via that website. And like I said, any questions, any more evidence, Anything at all, uh, you know, the guild is open to uh, talking to anybody at any time. We never turn down a plea for help. So, uh, you know, the door is always open. And what's next for Colin O'Reilly? What do you have in the, on the books here uh, for the future? It sounds like you might be well, getting ready for another yeah, long ride. And, the Encyclopedia of Equestrian Exploration. That's going to be the largest collection of information ever. And my wife and I uh, are getting ready to sit off on the world's first equestrian journey around the world. Wow. 
how long would not tell me about this. Let's talk a little bit about this. I was going to let you go here, but now I got to find out what is. So you're going to go all the way around the world. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because let me put this into a, a modern perspective. Okay. Twelve men. Mark you, I said men. Twelve men have walked on the moon, but no human being has ever ridden around the planet Earth. Uh, and considering how long we've been involved with horses, that's astonishing. Uh, and so my wife, Basha, uh, and I are going to ride uh, around the Earth, around what I call the equestrian equator. That's the old grassland that ran from east to west from the steppes all the way up to Hungary. And we're going to start in France and travel across Europe and then across uh, the Ukraine, straight across Siberia, then jump over and cross Canada, and then come back to France. And uh, it's never been attempted. Wow. What's the timetable for this? When are you, when are you heading out? Uh, we're going to try to leave next year, and um, it should take we're going to we're going to try to do it in two stages. We're going to go from France to the middle of Siberia, just short of Lake Baikal, and then the next spring go from um, that part of Siberia over to Vladivostok then fly the horses to Vancouver and go Vancouver, Quebec, and then come back. So we think we can make it in two stages. Um, you know, Siberia is so is so tough. It's minus 60 out there in the winter, and that's a little bit too cold for me. Yeah. Uh, so um, we think what we'll do is we'll winter in Siberia and then press on the next year. Fantastic. Well, keep us updated on that because that sounds amazing. And what about you said you might be – you have enough evidence for uh, a second edition or, or, or you know, a supplemental uh, edition oh, no, of no, Deadly Act 1? You know, we, we already – I mean, in the first few weeks since the book's been released, um, there's already enough new information uh, to – to add us to that, put out a second edition, uh, and I'll probably do that uh, after the first of the year. Right now, I'm focusing on on this giant encyclopedia of equestrian exploration, um, and like I said, that that's designed to enable any human being to ride anywhere in, on the planet except Antarctica. Again, uh, you know, but if you want to ride from uh, Boston to Chicago, or you want to ride from Chicago to Arizona, or it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter where you want to go. It's going to be the one book that's going to tell you exactly how to do it, how to buy a horse, how to find the equipment, how to take care of all the challenges, etc. We've got a young journalist, as a matter of fact, who's getting ready to leave from Toronto. He's Brazilian. He's going to ride from Toronto back home to Brazil. Wow. Now. Unbelievable. There's some, some amazing people. I, I hope you guys get more attention uh, on what you guys are doing because it's just stunning stuff. Uh, and just, well, you know. It's a little bit more exciting than writing in a circle, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Before we sat down, Cacullin said he wasn't sure if he could go two hours, uh, but we've actually gone over two hours here. So, uh, I mean, I can't... Well, edit out all the boring stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, giving us the extra time, and, and just really uh, being open and honest and... and and, and so thoughtful about all this. Um, I loved the book. I can't put it over enough. Folks need to go out and pick it up. Deadly Equines, the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. And as I said earlier in this conversation, I mean, you're really kind of starting a revolution here of thought with regards to horses and, and, and doing some amazing stuff here with the long riders. So just a fantastic individual. I'm so psyched that we got the chance to have you on the program, and I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation so much. Keep in touch. I want to know what's going on with you. I want to know about more stories of man-eating horses, more information you're getting, and I want to know more about this trip that you're taking around the world. So please, stay in touch, Cacullin. It has been a pleasure on my end for this conversation. It's been awesome. It's been really nice talking to you, Tim. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. 
Big, big thanks to Cullen O'Reilly for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out his websites, thelongridersguild.com and the Long Riders Guild Academic Foundation, which you can find at lrgaf.org. And you definitely want to go out of your way to pick up a copy of Deadly Equines, the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. This book will bend your mind, folks. Be sure to check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And this week we've got two emails and a plug, so let's get cooking. Let me do the plug first. About a month ago I went to the BOA PO box to open it up, see what we got inside, and amongst the letters and donations, thank you very much folks, was a package from a man named Rick Thomas in Montreal. And when I opened it up I was just thrilled to find the comic book Beside Top Secret and a letter from Rick that said he was a faithful BOA Audio listener and that one of the stories in Beside Top Secret was inspired by BOA Audio. So just amazing stuff. And I uh, really enjoyed the comic quite a bit. As I said, it's called Beside Top Secret. It's sort of like a parapolitical comic book. And very, very well informed. That's what I was really impressed by. Rick really has done his homework. He is a true esoteric aficionado. And you can tell by reading Beside Tov Secret. And he's also a very, very talented artist. So a tremendous piece of work. You can find out more about it at BesideTopSecret.blogspot.com. So head on over there to find out more about Beside Top Secret. He's also got a presence on Facebook as well. Thank you for the very cool package, Rick. I really appreciated it and was just completely blown away that BOA Audio has inspired some other form of artwork out there. So kudos to you, Rick. Well done, and I'll be keeping my eyes peeled for Beside Top Secret issue number two. Now let's deal here with the emails. First one comes from Scott, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I have a guest request. Jody Foster of Chico, California, just had her book published. Its subject matter deals with the paranormal. Her website and contact info is at jodyfoster.net. Thank you, Tim. Hey, you sound like Anderson Cooper. Anyways, take care, Scott. I've never been compared to Anderson Cooper before, so I guess that's a compliment. I'll take that, Scott. Thank you. And thank you for writing in, of course. And thank you for the guest suggestion. I haven't had a chance to check out Jodie Foster's stuff yet. I presume it's not the actress Jodie Foster. Uh, it's spelled J-O-D-I, so I guess it's not. But I will use your email here to segue into our annual or seasonal call for guest requests and guest suggestions. Because as we said here in the beginning of the program, this is episode number one of the final four of season six which means most of the slots here for Season 6 have been filled. I think we have one more open slot that's about to be filled. So Season 6 is pretty much entirely booked, and all the folks who have been contacting me over the last few weeks looking to get on the program or looking to suggest people have had their emails slipped into the BOA Audio Season 7 pile. So... As we do every year here around the Final Four, it's time to call out to the folks who want to make guest suggestions and have guest requests. 
send them to me. You're going to get the contact info in just a few moments. I will definitely look into your guest suggestion and I will see what I can do. Maybe we'll have them on the program. And I got a really cool email. I don't have his name in front of me here right now, but I got a really cool email from the guy who suggested Gerard White way back at the beginning of season six. And he was just thrilled that we read an email from someone who has so thoroughly enjoyed the Gerard White episode. He recommended a guest. We brought the guest on. Then someone else somewhere across the world loved the interview, and that was all thanks to BOA Audio listeners. This really is a grassroots community here on BOA Audio. You have as much of a chance to influence the program as any other listener, so send me your guest suggestions. As I said, contact info in just a moment, and I will definitely take a look at Jody Foster's work, Scott, and once again, thank you for writing in. Next email comes from Steve, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Thanks for the crypto show. Lauren and I must be on the same wavelength. I too believe it's going to take the good old Fosse approach to finding Bigfoot. I would say more like a year instead of six months. Tim Dinsdale lived on Loch Ness year-round, looking for Nessie. That's how he got some of the best footage yet. By the way, whatever became of that film you're working on with Kimball? Thanks again, Steve. Thank you for writing in, Steve. The Kimball film is still sort of in the nebulous pre-production stages, so we'll keep you posted on any further developments on that. Takes time to make a movie, my friend, but we are still hard at work on making Beyond Best Evidence a reality. And I totally agree with both you and Lauren. The good old Fosse approach is the one to take here, looking for Bigfoot, and you sort of touched on you know, one of my personal dreams, in a sense. If I ever won the lottery, after I enjoyed the winnings for a while, after I got kind of sick of being rich, I have a feeling that I would hire some of the best trackers and and folks out there and really try and spend a year to six months in the woods looking for Bigfoot. I mean, I would just love to do that. I'd probably go insane, or I'd probably be just absolutely aghast at having to spend that much time in the woods, but maybe I'd enjoy it quite a bit. And if I captured Bigfoot at the end, it would totally be worth it. But it's something I've always wanted to do, is to hunt the Bigfoot and really do a good job at it by spending a considerable amount of time in the forest. Although after what Lauren told us here on the program, it may be all for naught, because the Bigfoot may be put off by my testosterone or whatever would... uh tweak out the Bigfoot, so maybe I would just need to fund a a woman to go into the woods to find Bigfoot, so I'd have to give that more thought. Once I win the lottery, we'll put together a think tank to properly capture the Bigfoot, but you and Lauren have touched on absolutely something I would love to do someday, and that is go on a legit Bigfoot hunt, not one of these weekend warrior style. I'm talking leave the world behind in search of Bigfoot. Glad you enjoyed the interview, Steve. I should point out that Steve had been calling for a Sea Monsters edition of the program for quite some time. Sent me a few messages on Facebook asking for coverage of Sea Monsters. So hopefully he enjoyed that aspect of the Lauren Coleman interview. And once again, thanks for writing in, Steve. And with that said, we'll zip up the BOA Audio mailbag this week since I really want to get the episode out to folks tonight. Thanks to Scott and Steve for writing in. Thanks to Rick Thomas for sending us Beside Top Secret. If you want to get in touch with me for those guest suggestions which I suggested or 
in an attempt to get on one of the final BOA Audio listener feedback mailbags of the season. Here are the means to get in touch with me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And of course, the final method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. It's BOA's paranormal playground, the United States of Esoterica. And if you didn't catch the URL, just head on over to Banal of America and click the forum button. I would be remiss also if I did not mention that I am a part of Twitter and Facebook, so if you want to join up with me on those sites, just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I will pop up right away on their search engine. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and it'll be awesome to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. I've still got a whole bunch of columns i got to get posted at Banal of America, but the BOA staff is hard at work coming up with all new material here. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I take off my cap and pass it around to the audience and ask you to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. How do you do that? That's simple. There's two ways to help us out. You can head on over to banalofamerica.com and just click the PayPal button. That's on the left-hand side of your screen, and they'll walk you through the process. It is safe and secure. But maybe you don't trust PayPal, maybe you don't trust the Internet, and you want to just make a donation via snail mail. That we can also help you out with, because we have, as mentioned earlier, the BOA PO Box. The address for that is Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866, and you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So altogether it is Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866, and if you send us a donation to the P.O. Box, we have two caveats. First, please make the donation out to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, since my bank is anal and they will not cash those donations. And the other is to please include your email address or some form of contact with your donation so I can reach out to you and thank you for helping BOA. It bears repeating once again here because I am a stickler about asking for donations and I want to make sure folks know this every time. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the audio series and website up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, I would love to tell you who it is, but we have not taped the episode yet. We're going to tape it in about two days, so I don't want to spoil anything yet. I don't want to jinx anything yet. 
but I will give you a little bit of a teaser here. And that is one of the most popular BOA audio guests ever on the program. Someone we talk to for probably longer than anyone ever on BOA audio is coming back to the program, making his triumphant return to Banal of America audio. In the last few weeks and months, he has been on a journey. He's going to tell us about his journey. He's going to give us an update on what he's been up to. And we're going to talk about a whole bunch of paranormal-related stuff. So that's the best teaser I could probably give. It is definitely a guest who is returning to the program by popular demand. It is not William Zabel, so we'll just end that rumor right now. It's definitely not William Zabel, but it is, as I said, one of the most popular BOA Audio guests ever. And he'll be returning to the program next week on BOA Audio I will put the full information once it is official on the BOA Facebook page, so stay tuned to find out more about who you'll be hearing next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on another installment of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Cullen O'Reilly for coming on the show. Thanks to Scott and Steve for their correspondences on BOA Audio listener feedback. Thanks to Rick Thomas for sending me several copies of Beside Top Secret Number 1. Check out his blog, once again, besidetopsecret.blogspot.com. And finally, of course, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the people who have been supporting this program for so very long, and the folks who stick around all the way to the end of the program. You guys are the very best. Without your help and support, this program would be nothing, and that is a fact that is never lost on your humble host. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. Thank you for your tireless support, and thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim and all, thanking you for listening and signing off.